A good Thursday to you on this April 29th. Welcome to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Samuel G. Brooks. We wish you all a good morning to the Real Talkers out there that have that have already been in on the chat for for quite some time. We love it. You show up essentially earlier than we do in a way you show up earlier than we do and we love we're we all love still in bed when you guys are getting on the chat and, yeah. yeah well speak for yourself okay fine <laughs> yeah yeah speak for yourself i've been getting up actually over the over the last year or so i've been getting up way earlier than i ever did not than i ever did hosting morning television uh you're getting up at obscene hours you're getting up at three o'clock in the morning however there's been something about the last year i used to cherish my sleep-ins i used to sleep in uh, until the very last minute, like I would squeeze five minutes, snooze, 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 snooze. And it'd be like, why do you even hit snooze? Right. Why don't, why don't you why don't you skip all the snoozes and have your alarm go up right at the very end? The emergency. And then something happened this year. And I started. I don't know. I'm getting up earlier. I'm facing the day, seeing the mornings. It's maybe going to bed earlier. I don't know. The pandemic's taking everything and. and Put it through the salad spinner. Maybe this is a positive, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it is. I'm losing my mojo. I used to be the late night guy. I used to be the night owl. You know, uh, up see, until I three in the not, morning. I'm not a snooze button person. I won't do it. No. I feel like it is a slippery slope. So the minute that I start using it, then I'm in trouble. So you set one alarm and the alarm goes and you get up like that? Yeah, because I know that I have no safety net. That it's like either you get up now. Or you're sleeping in and you're missing whatever it is that you have that alarm set for. Are you? We're all just getting to know each other now. This is this is like day four for you, uh, which is great. I see. How 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 are you? Uh, I mean, everything's like you're, you've become a part of the machine now, right? And I've been I've been kind of keeping like an observer eye on your Twitter. <laughs> And your your Twitter has been a has been a there's been some major activity there. There's been some serious activity on your Twitter. There. Yeah, yeah. So people can make sure to give you a follow there. And you, one one of the things I love that you're adding to the mix. One of the things you're adding to the mix is live tweeting through the show, which is mm. great. And that's something an element that we've been excited about for a long time. But uh, yeah, so so I don't know. I mean, we're getting to know you a little bit. I don't know a ton. Of, like, are you are you like do you go to bed at nine o'clock or do you go to bed at three in the morning? Oh boy. Well, in like prep for coming on this show and having to be here at 7:30, I've been going to bed a lot earlier. So like 9 o'clock. Really? But, oh, well, wow. I, I'm trying to be I'm trying to be a good kid, you know? Um, get to bed. Well, before you were doing this job, what would be what time would you go to bed? So my I got laughed right out of the room by some friends and family because I was like, oh, my gosh, 730. I have to be at the office at 730 because I've been working um, contracts. So I basically have not set an alarm for probably like. So you've been doing whatever you want. Yeah. You, like you could yeah. go to bed at four in the morning, but you might be working at two in the morning. Absolutely. Right. right? And then yeah. maybe you're feeling productive. So you work till 5 a.m. and then you sleep till noon and then you walk the dog and have a great day and do whatever you want. Yeah. Just shift things around like it was a moving oh, all the different moving parts. I am so sorry. So to you ruined it. You, you ruined it. <laughs> Sam, what was your deal? Are you are you like a do you have a rigid sleep schedule? I oh, man, I'm I'm bad. I I I, you know, previous to this show, I was someone that would go to bed at like midnight or one and that kind of thing. And yeah. actually, when we first started doing the show, I would I would try and stay up in lockstep with you. So if you were sending me things in the middle of the night, I'd try and be up to get them. I didn't know you were um, doing that. And, and then I realized I can do that the next morning. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, for me, um, I my alarm goes off at six and Kelly's alarm goes off at 6.30. So I have the built-in snooze function of 
if, uh, if for whatever reason I decide to power through my alarm on a particular morning, uh, I, I know that, that she's I have at got most your back. half an hour and she's got my back. She's do, been now, on vacation this week, so that deal, doesn't count. Uh, do you have to deal with the dynamic or like, is she ever annoyed at you that your alarm is waking her up? 30 minutes before she needs to get up. Kelly sleeps with earplugs and she's oh, very nice. selective about only hearing her alarm. It's very weird that way. She's trained her brain. Yeah. And and uh, what's <laughs> the other thing that just throws me <laughs> is that like Kelly's alarm is her phone. And Kelly's alarm is my mom's ringtone. So if I'm ever around my parents, all of a sudden I hear Kelly's wake up alarm going off and it just kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. I, yeah, I'm all over the map, but I don't know. I'd be curious. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of commentary on vaccines that's going on um, on our live chat, which is great because, I mean, our mandate here on Real Talk is to talk about the things that people are talking about. Mm. And in some cases, to talk about the things that people aren't talking about, but probably should be talking about. In this case, we're reflecting what you're talking about. I mean, you're talking about vaccines and, and tomorrow's show in a big way. We're going to be uh, I mean, our Friday roundtable tomorrow, our real talk roundtable is uh, all around vaccines. And it's great because we've got a couple of prominent voices that are out there. Uh, this new campaign is being backed by a bunch of, of prominent Canadians encouraging people <clears throat> to get their shot. And that includes Arlene Dickinson, uh, who's <clears throat> been on the show before. Can you tell I'm trying to <clears throat> smoothly get this frog out of my throat <clears throat> while pretending like there's not a frog in my throat <clears throat> the whole time? What can I do? It kept, it, it, yeah, you can just it, throw it to us and take some it, coffee. It kind of kept, it, it kept popping up. And so I finally decided to just acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> But um, uh, yeah, so so tomorrow, Arlene Dickinson, Clara Hughes, obviously uh, one of Canada's, you know, I'm going to say most legendary athletes in, in Canadian history. I don't there's think that's an understatement. Yeah. There's nothing you know, she can't do. Well, if you're going to win, if you're going to win medals in both the winter and summer Olympic Games, uh, in my opinion, you have like, you know what it would be. Yeah, can you imagine being Claire Hughes at like a cocktail party or maybe like a juice bar party or wherever like elite athletes go to hang out and and so, and she meets somebody who maybe I don't know maybe maybe they they don't they don't quite realize who they're talking to but they they too are an Olympic medalist and they might sort of say that you know they're feeling pretty good I mean you feel pretty good about yourself wouldn't yeah. you you know what's your name oh Clara hi Clara I'm Jonathan and um, you may know me I I actually won an Olympic medal for Canada and she she would be able to say. Oh yeah, winter or summer, <laughs> and then and you could say with 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 the confidence of knowing that the chances of you meeting another person that's won that's medaled in both games is probably very small. Um, she'll be joining us uh, as will Arlene, and then a third. We're going to have a medical voice, like a pediatrician or virologist. Sarah's working on that, um, so that's going to be our roundtable tomorrow. I'm excited about that. The point of this is that on our live chat this morning, everybody's talking about the vaccine at least out of the gates. Like crazy, James says, I took a shower. He's plotted out his whole morning. He says, I took a shower before the show, before real talk, because I can't stay for it all. I have to take the kids to get stabbed with that sweet, sweet science. Um, and then Brenda follows up and says, well, that's great. Brenda says, because my husband gets the shot today, too. And then Brenda follows up quickly and says, you know, shot and stabbed does sound terrible. Maybe we should say poked. And, and I don't know that poked sounds any better, quite frankly. I uh, love jabbed. I jabbed. love jabbed. That seems to be it's the very vernacular British. these days, doesn't it? I, I just, yeah, I feel very proper to saying it. You know, get yeah, jab. You, you're gonna get jobbed. So we want to hear your, uh, your your vaccine stories, and we we celebrate everybody that's getting it, and congratulations. 
Um, so that's going to be uh, very cool stuff. Uh, we're going to be talking to Sapria Tovetti in just a second. Now, we're going to be taking a closer look at what's going on um, in Canadian real estate a little bit later on in the show. Now, if you're listening or watching this from Vancouver, you may have a different interest than if you're tuning in from South, you know, Southern Alberta, let's say Calgary right now, which is experiencing some interesting trends. Maybe in Toronto, we'll talk to Sapria. I'm pretty sure if memory serves correct, last time she was on the show, she was telling us uh, she and her hubby, their family, they're they're getting in the game. I think weren't they getting set to list their house or something last time she told us? We'll find out. And then, of course, Canadian icon. Uh, as a matter of fact, is this is this just a week chock full of Canadian icons on the show? It sounds like it is. Yeah. So Arlene Dickinson, Clara Hughes tomorrow. Ed the sock today. Yeah, right. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, that Ed, like freaking Ed the Sock is joining us in about an hour and 20 minutes. And I'm going to look forward to that uh, probably more than anybody else because um, Ed, to me, <laughs> growing up as a kid, although if anybody wants to compete with me, I would love it. Uh, you know, Ed's biggest fan. I mean, uh, seriously, as I was a kid um, watching much music, like I'm talking like preteen into teen, was Ed the Sock big for you, Sarah? You're nodding. I mean, w- was he a big character? Or you- oh, yeah. I mean. Is that a dumb question? I, I don't think it's a dumb question um i don't assume anything <laughs> like i bet somebody watching or maybe even some of our audience members our younger ones might be like at the sock and they're the gonna quickly google it but yeah. like i'm not even gonna try to imitate him because i can't but like argh! like no i can't do it but like the, the cigar in the mouth and it's just like the i don't know i just he he was huge i would see i thought when you were like oh we've had so many canadian icons on this week and i was like oh ryan this oh is you're my... thinking maybe you yeah i'm like first week in your so own nice. regard yeah in my own mind yeah well, you Canadian didn't, icon. You didn't get this job because you lack confidence. <laughs> <laughs> the show is presented every morning by the team at Bitcoin. Well, if you have questions about crypto, and I, and I think that's just about everybody, because it's just about levels of understanding. If you like to discuss it, if you're interested in trends, if you're trying to find a way to determine, you know, whether or not this could be part of your plan toward financial sovereignty, either as an individual or as a business. They're here to advise you. They love those types of conversations, uh, and you can find them. Real humans, persons, people based out of Edmonton. They return your calls and everything. You can find them online under the Sponsors tab, Bitcoin Wealth at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Supriya Devetti is, uh, well, she's... uh, She's a, a political pundit. You see her, you know, on on, on power and politics and, and other national shows talking uh, politics. She's senior counsel for Enterprise Canada. She and I, former colleagues, uh, we've covered elections together um, and a voice that we go to when we want to make sense of things that are happening, uh, you know, across the country. It's great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. And thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I feel like a bit of a schlub because I didn't put on a collared shirt and here you are in a blazer looking all, you know, nice. This, you know, what? Yes, yesterday, if I remember correctly, I don't remember exactly. I think yesterday I was wearing a T-shirt and, and jeans with a blazer. I wouldn't sweat it. Okay. Um, we have Real Talk swag coming out soon. And, and the minute that we have it, like our snapbacks and, and shirts and stuff, like I, I'm going to be showing up wearing snapbacks. So, <laughs> nice. so I'm, I'm, I'm like, slow. I was about to say I'm slowly morphing into Joe Rogan. And then I realized that everybody's <laughs> pissed off at Joe Rogan this week because he says his advice to young people is that they shouldn't get the vaccine. And I saw that, you know, n- no, none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci had a comment on that yesterday saying, you know, Joe Rogan should probably. Well, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, check himself. 
It's yeah, dangerous. It. It's it's dangerous ground these days. Everybody's got an opinion. We we talked about this. We've talked about this with Timothy Caulfield and others, and a ton of doctors. And I'm sure you're seeing these conversations too. Everybody's got an opinion on the vaccine, and um, yeah, it's interesting. It kind of becomes this contentious thing. I'm noticing a lot of people, even on like their Instagram stories, just average ordinary people saying, "I got my shot. I'm so excited." And then they all they have caveats that are like, "But we can all still be friends regardless of how you feel about the vaccine," <laughs> which is you know somewhat silly in this day and age. Um, but I understand why people would feel the need to, I guess, put that caveat sort of out there. I just, it's, it's amazing to me that in 13 months we were able to go basically from, Whoa, what's this going on to having a full suite, not just one, you know, effective vaccine, but multiple effective vaccine uh, against this virus. And, and I think this is, you know, really good news for humanity going forward. I would seem to get buried a little bit. Uh, in the last two weeks with a flurry of news with regarding COVID is that there's a rather effective vaccine now when it comes to malaria, right? And, and there was another news prior, there's another little bit of news that got buried about the developments with respect to mRNA uh, vaccine technology and how it would work with multiple sclerosis. So we're at a great point in, in humanity, I think. And so it's good to remember that from time to time because I myself am a really big Debbie Downer all the time. So No, you're not a Debbie Downer. You're a realist and there's a difference, right? I mean, people always I, I people that say to me, uh, you come across like a bit of a pessimist. I say I'm a realist and there's a difference. You know, I I I guess and and being realistic about things through this pandemic has has taken on different meaning to me. I'm trying to evaluate scenarios like, you know, you'll talk to somebody that that believes that everything needs to be absolutely locked down, you know, and they'll say, look at look at like New Zealand or Australia or look at some of these countries, some of these countries in Asia that have that have done effective lockdowns. And now they're holding like full blown music festivals and people are throwing weddings with 300 people there. Um, And then and then you talk to business owners that are like. You know, um, we're totally screwed and we're going to lose our life savings and we're closing our businesses and, and whatever. And, and then, you, you know, you you participate in political commentary where you understand. And I think there's common threads in the province where where I'm talking to you from the province where you're talking to me from. Right. Alberta and Ontario right now, the provinces with pretty much, you know, the worst covid-19 numbers, to be honest. And depending on the stats, you look like either we're edging you or you're edging us out there. But these politicians, notably Premier Doug Ford and Premier Jason Kenney, both of them being pulled in different directions. Alberta is a fascinating story because half of Kenney's base is pissed off he's not doing enough and half of the base is pissed off he's doing too much. Yeah, that's and that's a really good point. You know, earlier into the pandemic, I remember Premier Ford said something uh, to that effect where his half of his caucus was mad at him for going not far enough. And the other half was saying that he was going too far and it was his job to sort of, you know, corral them into the middle. The problem with that sort of thinking, I mean, that that's very good thinking in normal times. Right. When you're talking about a normal political situation and you're trying to lead a, a you know, fractured sort of base or caucus if you will. The problem is that 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 cannot apply in a public health emergency in the middle of a pandemic uh, with a a very, you know, especially with these variants with with, with a very transmissible 
virus. And so you end up in the end, even though I can certainly appreciate the thinking and the logic behind trying to meet your caucus in the middle, you end up in the end with a rather ineffectual public health response. Um, and I think that is, you know, arguably the case for the province I'm talking to you from and the province that you're uh, talking to me from. And in the end, you know, uh, I think businesses really lose out in in the longer term. You know, you were mentioning uh, New Zealand and, and some countries uh, in Asia that have done quite well with respect to the, their pandemic response. And now they're holding concerts. I mean, we can talk about the Atlantic provinces as well. Right. And I know there's been a bit of a flare up and Nova Scotia has taken um, some rather you know, good and strong proactive measures with that respect. But, you know, there was a way to go about this in Canada as well. If we wanted to, um, it just turns out that a lot of our provinces opted not to. And, and you know, I, I want to make clear that I don't think this is really a partisan thing either, because I think arguably, if you look at um, British Columbia and some of the measures that um, Horgan has either enacted or refused to enact. I mean, he has been in a lot of ways very comparable to um, Premier Ford here in Ontario. And I, you know, and if you were to look at their uh, political ideology or, or partisan thinking, I mean, those two dudes are pretty far apart, right? So, so I, I it's 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 weird. It's it's been a weird mix, and uh, I'm just looking forward to you know getting a vaccine myself eventually at some point and looking at the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, we've uh, we've got an ask in with Nova Scotia's premier, Premier Rankin, and I'm and I'm curious to pick his brain on on the decision that goes behind. Now, I, I've got to be honest, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was 96 new cases. Um, now, obviously, there's there's population ratios to keep in mind when, when evaluating. I mean, like there's Ontario's had days where there's like 7000 plus. Right. Alberta's had days flirting with 2000 new cases in a day. So so for perspective, I mean, fewer people in Nova Scotia, but still 96 they were sounding the alarm, right? I mean, the premier is talking about a circuit breaker and, yeah. and on and on Wednesday. Uh, so yesterday until at least May 12th, they say so at least for the next two weeks, um, you know, they go into essentially a, a pretty restricted reality. All public and private schools are closed, right? Restaurants and bars closed for dine in service. Um, hair salons, barbershops, spas closed. Um, casinos obviously closed. I shouldn't even say obviously because that's not obvious, but they are closed. Um, you know, long term care homes closed to visitors and volunteers. They can only gather outdoors with people in the household bubble. I mean, they take it seriously. It's interesting to see. I mean, you wonder. I don't know. I mean, it's I don't know if there's a right answer to this. You would probably have to talk to folks living in Nova Scotia. You're closer to there than I am. Um, <laughs> but I can almost see Alaska from my house, Sapria. So. Uh, but but like, is there you know, you wonder, is there more is there more buy in in a place like Nova Scotia? And if so, why? I mean, I don't have to tell you about these so-called freedom yeah. freedom rallies in Alberta. I mean, if you talk about, you know, asking 1800 people do not gather in a church they all start their trucks up and convoy to a rally to talk about their freedoms i mean it's uh, it's demonstrably different yeah hey there's a ton of that going on in ontario too right with anti-masker rallies and and the same sort of rhetoric uh bubbling up i would be very interested to see in the coming sort of you know months and, and really years after the pandemic looking into what really differentiated um, from certain, you know, jurisdictions with respect to uh, the population's outlook on things like governmental measures? I know one thing that was pointed to early into the pandemic was the concept of like social cohesion 
and a strong belief in public institutions and having, you know, um, not a a negative, a generally negative view of those sorts of things. And I, you know, just in speaking to some Atlantic Canadians, um, it it does strike me as there, there is more buy-in. And I think there is more of that sort of social cohesive element to Atlantic Canada possibly than the rest of the country, which is, you know, why they're able to go about it. There's just this general sense of, well, we have to care for one another and you don't necessarily need to do the same sort of explaining of, well, it's not just about you. It's about you then not transmitting that, transmitting that virus to somebody who is more vulnerable than you. Right. And I think that's something that is often lost on a lot of people because they're like, well, screw that. I'm just going to look after myself and my own, you know, immediate family. Um, And it doesn't necessarily extend to, to the larger community. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see the, the, the longer term effects on um, friendships and and relationships and yeah. things like that you know i think i think the pandemic has created some i don't know i mean it's it's like in light it's it's shone some light on some things where some people i think are thinking about others that have been close to them for a long time and going i had no idea that they felt that way or i had no idea they were kind of wired that way and uh, i <laughs> i'm talking about myself right now like some some people that i've have had a lot of respect for and and um I just there's been a couple circumstances where I'm like, holy, you know, you just want to be like Homer backing into the hedges. Yeah, slowly. Exactly. Yeah. Homer backing into the hedges. And I just I don't even I don't have a point in saying that. I just it's it's something that's been on my mind lately, especially with a couple of posts I've seen people sharing on vaccines. I'm like, I thought we were aligned, but I guess not. I'm trying to wrap my mind around what's going on in India. We talked to the prime minister last week uh, on Tuesday and asked him about, you know, closing Canadian airports and, and shutting down flights, direct flights from India. At that time, he kind of was humming and hawing about it. And then the federal government took action shortly after. A couple of days ago, the prime minister announcing that Canada will, will send $10 million to the Indian Red Cross. And I'm sure that they're going to send more than that. But it's unbelievable what's happening over there. It's tragic, uh, greatly concerning. Thousands more lives. Their health care capacities, I mean, they're beyond stretched. When we talk about, in a Canadian context, about stretched health resources, imagine that times 10. On Wednesday's uh, uh, official death toll, the announcement from the Indian government, it's past 200,000, a new global record. They logged 362,000 plus infections in a 24 hour period, bringing the total number of cases to more than 17.9 million. I mean, this is a story, obviously, in the context of a pandemic, the global community right now is paying attention to India. How are you approaching this? How are you wrapping your mind around what you're seeing over there? I mean, it's just a level of devastation and death that. I definitely have not been, you know, privy to in, in, in my lifetime. And, you know, you mentioned some of the numbers there. I would expect that is probably, you know, reliably undercounted to a to a rather significant uh, degree at that. So the on the ground numbers are, are, are probably, you know, higher than than what's being officially reported. And just hearing from journalists on the ground, hearing from family on the ground, it's uh, it's it's dire. There's no oxygen. There's no beds. Um, if there is a bed, then it could be multiple, you know, two people to a bed. Uh, there was a, a journalist that was reporting on the ground in the, the New Delhi area of a woman who died uh, in hospital and her son and her son-in-law because there were no facility, there was no official facility to uh, store the body or to help transport the body. Um, 
took her limp dead body with them, uh, propped it up on a scooter, uh, sandwiched in between them and, and drove her home. Um, the, you know, crematoriums that are in and around the, the greater New Delhi area, in and around the, the greater Kolkata area are, are they're just inundated. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's a lot uh, of blame to go around, particularly with, uh, with state and, and federal officials in, in India. Um, you know, we were talking um, just a little while ago, you know, as, as, as a country about tapping into um, the, the India Serum Institute for vaccines. And, and we did get them that, you know, that's what they're licensed for the AstraZeneca vaccine. And um, they need them. They need their own vaccines. And I think, you know, some of the vaccine diplomacy that Prime Minister Narendra Modi in, in India was sort of touting uh, earlier into the year. There's now quite a bit of domestic frustration um, with that because, you know, uh, Indians are, are pissed. They were like, well, we needed these vaccines. Um, and here you were kind of shipping them off to arguably much richer countries. And it will be, you know, the political ramifications like that are obviously interesting, but the more immediate and pressing issue is just how to get help to that country, how to, how to you know, quell as much of the spread and as much of the death and devastation um, that we can. And then globally, this is obviously a problem because it's basically a real life evolutionary virology experiment that is currently occurring in that country. Um, Brazil as well, uh, for to, 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 to a certain degree, right? Like if you let a virus to spread unchecked, um, you will come across mutations. It's just what viruses do. And you're increasing the probability that that virus will mutate into a more transmissible form. And we already do have um, you know, a variant that has emerged, was first emerged um, in, in the New Delhi area. So yeah. I, 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 I worry quite a bit. I don't want to be guilty of cherry picking, but it is interesting just anecdotally to note that you, you take a look at, at, you know, how you might characterize the leadership in some of these countries that have outbreaks right now. And, and, I, and I don't want to be unfair in my assessment or, or try to stretch too far in making it, but you could probably find some some commonalities, some similarities, even with Modi, uh, Bolsonaro, and, and probably Kenny and Ford, to be quite honest, uh, with regards to how they're wired and and kind of their constituents in the base and how the base might feel about things like lockdowns, freedoms, freedom of movement, gathering, personal rights, constitutional rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe it's a bit of a spread, stretch, but but I don't think so. I think if you if you take a look at the jurisdictions that have really nailed it, yeah, there are some contributing factors. Um, you know, geographically, even with some nations, and there are certainly financial implications the wealthier countries are going to do better like you said in procuring vaccines but there are political i mean i think you know this is something we're going to look back on to say the, to say the least profound thing i'll say all day for <laughs> for years for decades we will look back and uh, and reflect on this pandemic we, we documentary filmmakers long-form journalists could go in as you were talking about India shipping vaccines around, in my mind, I was picturing like, you know, those airline maps where they show the air traffic all around the world. Yeah. And, they, you know, it looks like I mean, you could do probably a documentary on early and then later movement and shipment of vaccines and countries loaning vaccines to one another and selling vaccines and and securing vaccines early. And and, and it's kind of the position the Trump administration took early on, which was to protect Americans first and 
some other people outside the U.S. were outraged and, you know, at the same but time. That's what we're doing, too, right? 100%. I mean, Canada, and that's exactly, actually, quite yeah. frankly, that was Trump's job, whether people like it or not. That's one thing that I think he hit the nail head on. If I was Canadian prime minister, I'd get Canadians vaccine vaccinated first. I would never apologize for that ever. So it'll be yeah, interesting. I mean, I don't know how you would sell it otherwise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As a Canadian leader, yeah. Um, with regards to India, we wanted to mention to, to people, you know, Canadians will sit here and go, like, is there something we can do or what can we can do? One of the websites that we've vetted that we've taken a look at um, is at covid.giveindia.org. Uh, covid.giveindia.org. It's a way, you know, you can see there they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of donors and people are stepping up and doing what they can to donate. It's, it's, a, it's a desperate, desperate situation over there. <clears throat> you can take a look at social media. Some of the reporting by the New York Times that I was taking a look at, um, you know, people on, are on on social media platforms there, like community marketplace platforms, trying to secure oxygen cylinders. I mean, like it is it is absolute desperation. It's a tragic story. Uh, talking about the federal government, I can't have you here on the show and not ask you what you make of the federal budget. The first one in two years that was out last Monday. We've had a chance to think about it, process it. Obviously described uh, the the prime minister bristled when I put it this way. He, he got a little bit agitated. You can see it in the interview. But I said a lot of people are describing this more as an election platform uh, <laughs> than a budget. <laughs> Do you agree or disagree? Well, I will say there's definitely something in there for any group that has been hard hit by this pandemic. Right. So in that aspect, yeah, I suppose it's an election budget um, if you want to qualify it as that. But I think, you know, from the federal government's perspective, given the fact that it was two years in uh, in the waiting in the last year, uh, you know, Canadians have been hit quite hard, obviously, by by this pandemic. I don't know what other option they would have realistically had other than to come out with a budget of this sort of magnitude. Right. It was like something like over 700 pages. So the one the one thing that really stood out to me uh, and, you know, my demographic of friends was the childcare plan, because we've been talking about childcare in this country for so long. My home province of Quebec um, you know, instituted a subsidized childcare or daycare or daycare program a really long time ago, and it has paid in and of it's so many dividends with respect to um, you know female participation in in the workforce, with respect to um, you know men in in hetero relationships taking uh, paternity leave or, or or parental leave. That's uh, quite the norm in in, in the province of, of Quebec as well. And I just think particularly talking to you from the GTA here, um, daycare is incredibly expensive. I had one friend tell me that when her, her kids are like 14 or 15 months apart, that when they were both in the um, you know toddler and infant room, she was paying more for daycare than she was for her mortgage. Um, and that and that's an insane amount, right? To be paying for childcare, and it's it's just completely un, untenable. And given the fact that women have been hit so much harder with this pandemic, you know, um, Armenia Yelnizian, who's a very well known uh, economist, has you know dubbed it the she session. She dubbed it that for a reason, right? Because um, it, it has been impacting women, and we have to ensure that women are able to go back to the workforce. And unfortunately. Um, the decisions that a lot of women have made uh, with, you know, self-selecting themselves out of the workforce has to do with childcare a lot of the time. And, you know, I, I know that there are certain circles that will poo-poo the notion of, uh, 
of a childcare program saying that it should be left up to the individual families and we don't need government stepping in. But I mean, I think the case in Quebec kind of shows it for itself that uh, by having a subsidized childcare program, um, you do get the, you know, dollars and cents back into the economy. And so it's the right moral thing to do and it's the right financial thing to do. Heidi's watching right now. She says my mortgage was less than my one child in care when I lived in Edmonton. She says we were in a smaller condo, but still, um, you know, there's there's uh, Heather says I keep going back to the fact that most child care workers are also women who are currently Mm -hmm. making minimum wage. Um, Let's tee this up for context. Uh, This was, uh, by the way, we're we're past uh, 11 o'clock Eastern. Do you have to go at any point? I don't want to screw up your morning. No, no, I'm okay. Okay. You might hear my kid in the background. Oh, great. Perfect. (laughs) I was going to say we're a family-friendly show. It depends on when people tune in. Um, Fridays on Trash Talk, not so much family-friendly. But today, we we would make little Duvetti very proud to hear Mama on the show, and we won't get into anything outrageously inappropriate. Uh, This is the Prime Minister on this show last week when I put it in front of him, saying, hey, some of the critics are calling this more of an election platform than a budget. Here's the PM. Uh, Prime Minister, the budget being described, uh, I think, by some as maybe more of an election platform than than anything. W- would you are you prepared to confirm or rule out an election by the end of this calendar year? I, it's it's amazing to me that people can look at a budget that is focused on supporting people both in the short term and building for the longer term uh, and say, oh, it's just about an election. No, it's not about an election. It's about giving people the support they need. It's about getting that balance right between being there right now for people while they continue to need supports through COVID uh, to helping our businesses bounce back from this recession and also putting in place uh, the pathway to be even more prosperous, even more economic opportunities for everyone in the coming months. That's the job of a government to do, particularly on the way out of a crisis. We saw in the 2008 crisis that the government at the time pulled back supports too quickly, and therefore the impact of the 2008 recession lingered much longer, particularly amongst vulnerable groups, than it should have. We're not making that mistake. We're making sure that those supports are there for people. And and I am happy to have conversations about why uh, this is the right path. We know uh, the Conservatives think we've spent too much. Uh, We shouldn't spend as much on Canadians. Uh, I disagree because I think supporting Canadians is not just the right thing to do, It's the thing that makes sense so that everyone, including those innovative Albertan oil workers and otherwise, are going to be able to contribute to building this better future. Okay, so you won't rule out an election by the end of the year, though, correct? We're in a minority government right now. Uh, I I am focused on this pandemic. I'm focused on getting through this pandemic. Uh, It'll be up to Parliament to decide when the uh, when the election is. So that was the PM uh, last Tuesday on the show. What do you what do you make of that with regards? I just like how you had to be like, so you didn't really answer the question. Yeah. Is there going to be an election or not? And then he goes, well, um, I'll leave yeah. it up to Parliament. I went, oh, okay, so there will be. Okay. Good. Yeah. I mean, look, if I was advising him, that's exactly the answer I would tell him to say, because, you know, realistically, it's not really necessarily up to the government to sure. It is up to the opposition parties if they if they want to go to an election. It's interesting that we've heard from, you know, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet saying him saying that he's not going to trigger one um, and, you know, we'll, we'll work with the government so that there is no election during a 
pandemic. Um, I wonder if he regrets saying that or not, because I feel like that he gave up a little bit of his leverage there. But um, it will be interesting to see, you know, once we do start to see a real ramp up in supply. Right. And I think in the next um, few weeks or so, we're certainly going to be seeing way more um, Pfizer doses coming in and we can expect to see more and more Canadians uh, become eligible for that vaccine. And I think the, the public mood or the, you know, the general uh, feeling on the ground for most Canadians in a month or two will be starkly more optimistic um, than we are feeling right now. And so I wonder if we're not possibly looking at uh, an election, you know, towards the end of summer, early fall ish. Let me ask you this uh, in closing and then we'll let you go. I know you got a ton to do today. Um, do you th- who do you think stands to benefit more with regards to their electoral fortunes, either holding support they have or trying to gain support that they want or even lost? In other words, the conservatives in some areas around the GTA uh, around Greater Vancouver, is it Justin Trudeau and the child care plan? Thirty billion over five years, eight billion every year after that, or is it Aaron O'Toole stepping out on a limb a little bit and talking about pricing carbon and talking about what a conservative plan might look like? And yeah, alienating some of his base on the prairies. We've seen evidence of it, at least when people declare their intentions on social media. Uh, But who do you think gains or loses more with the two plans, the two pillars that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks? So I'm going to say the government is at a bit of an advantage right now. Um, And that's, you know, by large part because they are the government. Right. Um, We are in the middle of a pandemic. So media attention is, you know, going to be focused on the prime minister and his ministers making announcements, MPs going out and making funding announcements. So the opposition inherently is at a bit of a disadvantage. And, you know, I'm sure they would argue a rather large disadvantage. The other thing that I think um, Mr. O'Toole and his team haven't necessarily done super effectively yet is to present, you know, a viable alternative for Canadians. Now, I, you know, I, I spoke to you a few weeks ago with respect to um, a conservative carbon plan. It's, it was, it has been, you know, since then it's been released. Um, I think it's interesting that they released it so early. Um, and I, I think that's probably, we've reached a good point now that all major political parties in Canada have reached a consensus that yes, climate change is real and we need to act on it. Um, but I, you know, I just think that the childcare plan in particular is a pretty big game changer for parents, uh, would be parents that I would imagine that would sell quite well in, uh, the 13 or so ridings that the liberals lost out on last time, uh, for them to not be able to form a majority government. And, and I think the other issue that, um, O'Toole has for him is that, you know, he has been quite clear about his, uh, you know, pro-choice position. He has been quite clear about his pro-LGBTQ position. I'm not sure the rest of his backbench is going to make that so easy for him on the campaign trail. Um, I think, you know, and we saw this with Sheer a little bit, that sometimes uh, it's a little bit difficult to corral the entire party um, you know, into the future, really. Yeah, uh, it, it's a fast. I could go on for an hour and a half, so I won't. But it's it's fascinating. Like <laughs> as a conservative politician where everybody acknowledges uh, whether you want to talk provincially in Alberta, Ontario or otherwise, um, everybody will acknowledge that a united conservative government uh, with a small U and a small C uh, will do better. 
Um, actually, a small U and a capital C, but still, right. I digress. Yeah. A small U, capital C. Um, a united conservative government, in other words, not splitting the vote, is always a better play, but it proves to be difficult. And some might even argue long-term impossible uh, in every jurisdiction you see because there are the factions that split. They're not getting what they want. They feel like they've been betrayed. They feel like the grassroots is being ignored. Everybody forgets that grassroots never wins when it comes to politics. It's only a thing people say to get your support. Grassroots never directs a party. Um, I'll stand to be corrected, but I I can't think of an example off the top of my head. And it seems like these parties kind of eat themselves alive in a way um you know they can achieve government then they start to cannibalize themselves and it's it's interesting i mean kenny's losing a lot of support of his as well 17 mlas have signed a a letter you know standing up against lockdown measures and they're starting to speak out more um you know we're getting well i i I, yeah i mean i've been watching his numbers kind of precipitously sort of drip 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 down um from here in ontario and it's been really interesting and intriguing to see particularly because there was so much uh political capital obviously that he had uh at the onset of his term and you know ditto ford uh he came in with perhaps not you know in, in prior to the pandemic he didn't have the best numbers but then he sort of was branded as like premier dad and he had all this political capital people loved how he was handling the pandemic and that too has just drip 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 all the way down yeah so it's interesting i i remember the the comments that people were making you know i mean like even two or three months ago saying you know would anyone have guessed that you know premier ford would be doing a better job than premier kenny and everyone was retweeting it and laughing and all this that, and the yeah. other and 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 when it all comes down to it i'm not sure that anybody's getting the praise neither of them are getting the praise now uh, and also i'm not intending to pile on i don't think it would be easy to be a, a political leader to say the very least through a pandemic it's not been easy on anybody and they've got so many things to manage but i think people sniff out bullshit they sniff out inconsistencies <laughs> and and that's what people are sniffing out here i'm going to be talking to thomas davidoff um from the uh Souter school of business at the university of british columbia in like 20 minutes or so we're going to take a look at real estate estate across canada and last time you were on the show you talked to us how you and your family have been keeping a keen eye on, on on the market in toronto and and it's certainly it's always been one of canada's uh superheated markets at least when the market is heated toronto's right there in the mix um you've been an interviewer for many years What's one I mean, I'm talking to somebody in Toronto right now. What's one question I should I should ask Mr. Davidoff about real estate in Eastern Canada, in Toronto in particular? What's the tipping point? Hmm. Because I'm curious as to what the tipping point is. I mean, you know, since we've since I was last on, we've sold our house and we got oh, another congrats. one in, in, in the suburbs. Thank you. And, you know, my husband and I were talking to one another once our house was sold and we were obviously, you know, very happy that we had sold it. But then we were like, you know, if we were just a little bit younger, we never would have been able to afford this house. And we had parental help at the time. So it's it's kind of it's demoralizing to think that um, real estate in this part of the country is just going up and up and up and up and with no sort of you know, forget a dip, but even like a plateau. And I'm just curious as to what is that tipping point? At what point are we going to start to see uh, a bit of a drop off or leveling off in in prices? Um, Not asking about price. None of our business never would. But did you get uh, below at or above list? And how many days was your house on the market? 
were houses on the market for, I think, a total of seven days. We got uh, significantly above list and we paid for our new house significantly above list. At this point, okay. list price in Ontario is just like a cute number you put on there. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it, you might as well just be like, well, why don't you tell me what you're willing to pay for it? Because it's just it's not even a suggestion. It's just a, num- a placeholder number. Well, and, and again, to state the obvious, which I'm really good at, um, you know, it, it, it's great when you make a whole bunch on your house but when you're paying a super inflated price for your next place as well it's a little bit different right it's another it's another thing if you're an empty nester i think that's cashing in and and moving to wherever kamloops or costa rica then it's a bit of a different story you can cash out when the market's hot but when you still got to pay to play it's a whole different ball game sapria devetti is a senior counsel at enterprise canada political pundit you see our national broadcasts like power and politics and real talk and we're always thrilled to have you here my friend thanks for doing this my pleasure, Ryan. You got it. That's Sapria Devetti. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at Sapria Devetti. Good friend of this show. Uh, we wanted to remind you that our friends at Westworld Computers right up until the end of April, which gives you like today and tomorrow, uh, they're offering 12 months, no payments, no interest on any Sonos orders. If you're not familiar with Sonos, it's the entire home Wi-Fi audio system. You're going to see a Sonos speaker and you're going to go, that's it? Because it's so small and tidy and it fits in the room and it doesn't dominate. It's not like when you were in university and you were able to finally finance those huge tower speakers with the, you know, the four 14-inch woofers. You know what I'm talking about. Are you telling me I have to get rid of mine? (laughs) No, pal. No, pal. (laughs) You never get rid of old speakers. You only add. You only add. But if you're building a system around your entire home, Sonos is what you're going to want to consider. They're portable and they punch way out of what you might expect. I mean, they're fantastic. Music, voice control, multi-room listening. 12 months, no payments, no interest through westworld.ca or in person at Westworld in Edmonton. Also wanted to remind you that it is a core value at local waste services. No BS. It's actually up on the wall. No BS. What does that mean? It means that they don't want small businesses paying for big garbage disposal bins. It's expensive, and that's not how they like to roll. Integrity drives their relationships with their customers. Check out localwaste.ca today to find out how your business can grow with them as your waste management provider. And of course, Local Waste tomorrow will be presenting Trash Talk, where you can get whatever you need to get off your chest. We've got some amazing ones already. To talk at ryanjesperson.com. Take five minutes and type us up an email today. We're going to get into some of your emails in just a moment. Sarah Hoyles, the producer of this show right now, is keeping a keen eye on some of the stories that are making news today. Let's get into the headlines. The third wave of COVID-19 could be Alberta's largest. Both new and active cases are surging towards the records that were set in December. Canadians are experiencing price hikes with inflation. Companies are trying to cope with higher commodity and shipping costs. I know folks that are doing renovations are seeing those lumber costs being very high. And uh, so those companies are passing on those costs to consumers. And the U.S. President Joe Biden marked 100 days in office yesterday. He spoke to Congress about a trillion-dollar plan for family-friendly policies. He said trickle-down economics simply don't work and he plans to fund these policies by taxing the wealthy and corporations see how that plays out for 
for Joe Biden. First 100 days. That seems to have gone by qu- kind of quickly, doesn't it? I feel like in the pandemic, time like contracts and expands. So it's like it feels like it was a really long time ago. And yet it feels like it was just yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I was I was noting as well. I mean, his um, his announced calling on his announcement calling on Congress yesterday, uh, President Joe Biden to to pass bipartisan immigration reform, a path mm. for citizenship mm. for undocumented immigrants. He said it's time to end our exhausting war over immigration congress needs to pass legislation this year to secure protection for dreamers the young people who've only known america as their home and permanent protection for immigrants who are here on temporary protected status that tps they always talk about uh coming from from countries uh as the president said yesterday beset by man man man-made and natural made violence and disaster as well as a pathway to citizenship for farm workers who put food on our tables this is big coming from the oval office and what a change in tone considering the previous administration the position that president trump took on dreamers absolutely i mean looking at what's actually happening on the border maybe a little bit of a different story um on the border i mean the border between mexico and the u.s um I think the thing that really struck me in what Biden was saying yesterday, I mean, yes, the tri- trillions and trillions of dollars, that's big time. But I think the biggest thing that that hit me was when he called white supremacy terrorism. Yeah. That to me was just like. Yeah, me too. When I was when I was watching the speech, I was just like, oh, wow, white supremacy, like white supremacy is terrorism. You just said it out loud in Congress. That was. Uh, yeah, to name it. Call yeah. it. Say like. I mean, Canada did it first. Do we get points for doing that, for, for adding the Proud Boys and, and other recognized white supremacist groups as uh, on our terror watch list? I mean, that was months ago, right? I remember Minister Bill Blair talking about that. We, we talked about it. Um, I, I think it's, it's past due. I mean, it's time. I mean, if, oh, if, if, if you take a look at a group like the Ku Klux Klan, if, if that group is not a terrorist group, who is? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, what is it's it's terrorizing, a group, you know, citizens. a group that terrorizes citizens to 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 perpetuate or introduce or or, you know, whatever, reiterate an ideology. I mean, yeah. That's what that is. Burning crosses, lynching people, murdering people, beating people, intimidating people. If that if that's not terrorism, what's terrorism? You know, someone's going to say, well, running planes into buildings. Yeah, sure. Sure. And detonating bombs and, and running pickup trucks through abortion clinics and, and, and all kinds of things. Let's call it what it is. And I think that's, I mean, when you say the candidate at first, I mean, yes, policy wise, there was a real, like, that was definitely like a line in the sand that they created with the policy around the Proud Boys. I just really appreciated, um, like, the stark contrast of of the statement by Joe Biden, like just being able to say, yeah. this is what it is. Let's stop dancing around it. Let's stop. I don't know. I just, I really appreciate the directness of it. Yeah. I agree with you. Wanted to get into some emails talk at ryanjesperson.com. Do you know what I'm not doing? And oh, geez, here I go. I'm doing it. I'm not talking about the thing I warned you I might talk about. Something was ruining my morning earlier today. It was not it was not Sarah nor Sam. Um, It it wasn't the the taste of the coffee. It wasn't the weather outside. It was the fact that I'm doing it. I'm doing (laughs) it. it. Dig in. I signed into social media and everything was fine. And I was and I was in a decent mood until I clicked on a link about a guy hunting elephants. And and it just, I'm sorry. And I and I left I left my window open, and and people can see it. You can read it at NewYorker.com right now. And I apologize if this is going to ruin your morning and ruin your day. You can see it here: the secret footage of the NRA chief's botched elephant hunt. 
Wayne LaPierre writes Mike Spies, Mike Spies, perhaps for The New Yorker. Wayne LaPierre has cultivated his image as an exemplar of American gun culture. But video of his clumsy marksmanship and details regarding his Rodeo Drive shopping trips tells another story. And it goes on to show video of the NRA leader and his wife shooting elephants. And why did I click on it? And why did I watch it? I guess I did. I did. I was I in too good of a mood today. Was I was I feeling too encouraged by our conversation about grief education yesterday and all of these wonderful emails that I have about people talking about grief and love and life and loss. And then I got to see some asshole blowing away an elephant just to kill it. I mean, they didn't just kill it. They discreetly chopped it up and shipped it home and they made end tables out of all four feet. Uh, We've had that confirmed. So, you know, I guess the elephant didn't completely go to waste because Buddy's got elephant foot end tables. Nothing more annoying than to have to build your end tables out of teak or oak or mahogany. Nothing more annoying than that. When you can take down the world's largest land mammal, a social animal that lives in herds and that mourns and weeps and remembers all the things we know about elephants, elephants more intelligent than uh, 17% of the human race, um, which is a statistic I just made up and don't cite it, but I guarantee it's true. Oh my gosh. Elephants are more, in my mind, elephants are more intelligent than the people hunting them. Okay. Or at least they've got bigger hearts. Literally and okay, otherwise, there, there is a fact. I that don't, is a fact. I don't, I just don't, I, I'm sorry. You and I are going to get to know each other very quickly. I suspect, <laughs> I don't know where you land on this, but I can probably wager a guess. I don't know. And I know someone's going to write in and say, well, you should do some research on how they actually feed entire villages by killing. These people would be starving. And thank goodness the NRI, NRA guy came over to blow away this elephant because they can feed a village with the elephant. And it shows how little you know about the money that goes back into conservation and bullshit. What are we doing killing lions and elephants and giraffes? Like, what are we even doing? I don't know. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to open the can of worms further. Just rip it open. (laughs) Just get rid of it right off. And dump it on the table. And like rip my hand open in the process of doing it on the jagged, jagged metal of the can. Anyways, um, <laughs> what I'm getting at is the like importation of uh, of tigers, of exotic animals. There are actually more tigers in the United States than there are anywhere else. Yeah, we get it. You watch Tiger King. <laughs> we get it. I actually didn't. Come on. I did not. Come on. Did not watch You've it. You've not watched Tiger King? No. Are you going to watch it? Heck no. Why? Oh, on this show, I can say hell no. Yeah, you can say hell no on this show. Is it, is it on principle you're not watching it? Okay. So as far as I can gather, there's this guy. Joe Exotic. Yeah. Great, great fashion taste. And um, but that's besides the point. That's that's an opinion. Um, (laughs) And he, you know, collects tigers and they are not necessarily treated very well. And he may have come to a a terrible end is what I'm what I've gathered. Mm -hmm. Anyways, the point is, is I think it's like, why would I? It is one of the most fascinating series that I've ever seen in my life. 
I just I, if you look at it like a documentary, which it essentially is, it's like a seven or eight part documentary, basically. Yeah. It there's something that ha- I will. I'm not going to wreck any of it for you. I'm not going to watch it. Oh my gosh! Well, you might say that because I said for years and years I'm not watching Thirty Rock. There you go. And I just started watching Thirty Rock two nights ago, and it's blowing my mind. They're not at all the same thing. Yeah, they're not at all. Like but that's not what we're talking about here. Right? <laughs> no, we're talking about you digging in your feet, saying you're never going to do something, and then down the road you might do it. I mean, yes, I can have my my mind changed. Absolutely, I'm not the kind of person that's going to be like, no, this is what I think, and I'm never changing my mind. For for me, it's kind of the glorification of. Ex- of exactly what I I don't agree with, which is importing exotic animals. We don't need to have them in our living rooms. And I just, to me, I'm like, this guy is a schmo. Why are we making idiots famous? Like, let's stop. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. This Why is, are we making idiots famous? I think is, is a uh, thing that the whole world thinks all the time. Fascinating on the live chat, people that are digging in their feet on, on, on Tiger King. It turns out that there's a lot of people uh, that are refusing to watch the show. It's it's you don't. I mean, it's one of these things where it's like because you watch it, it doesn't mean you support the position. Anyway, that's fine. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not. That's fine. It's everybody's right to not watch Tiger King. I'm just saying it is. Something happens every episode, every hour, every 45 minutes, whatever it is, 45 minutes maybe, where you're like, wait, what? And then the story just gets wilder. Yeah. And I'm not talking about like, you know. Oh, he he ate, you know, he ate a a rare jellyfish or he tried something interesting. No, I'm talking like a bomb dropping on the plot where you're like, how has nobody heard about this before this documentary came out? That was the thing that I was that I was stuck on. Heather writes into following me. I I warned you we might talk about elephants today. I was going to try to keep it at bay because I just didn't want to wreck everybody's day thinking about (laughs) elephants getting hunted. But now I've just decided I'm dragging you into the ditch with me because that's that's where I'm at right now after watching this freaking video. And uh, and Heather writes in and says, well, hey, if you eat cow. And I want to say, first of all, uh, uh-uh. and then second of all, OK, in other words, I don't want to dismiss the comment because she is right. And and Heather goes on to say cows are social, intelligent animals, and we're learning more and more about them all the time. And what makes my position on this particularly inconvenient is that cows also have disproportionately long eyelashes. And when and when you see a calf or a cow and you're up close to it and it's just like and you're like, oh, like we used to go to the family farm and we'd like feed the dairy cows grass over the fence. And all my cousins that are actual farmers would be like, look at the city slickers feeding grass to the cows. But still, you'd be like, these are pretty cool animals. They are cool animals. I I absolutely agree. And then also you put a 22 ounce uh, cowboy cut bone in ribeye in front of me. And like, I'm sorry. I'm going to take it down every single time with heaps of horseradish, scalloped potatoes, seared asparagus and sauteed mushrooms. Like, absolutely. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. I actually I think there's room for huge conversations about dialing back meat in the diet. I'm not afraid of those conversations. Elephants, to me, it's a different thing. The people that are hunting and and we can talk about cows all day. We'll we'll happily talk animal rights. I've interviewed animal rights lawyers before. Fascinating conversations. I have all the time in the world to talk about vegan, vegetarian diet trends. I'm not afraid of that at all. But but <laughs> in so many ways, as Sam wants to argue, and he does have a decent point that that why you may not watch 30 Walk and why you may not watch Tiger King, maybe two completely different premises yeah. for arguments. Um, nobody, nobody, nobody is hunting elephants and lions and tigers and giraffes 
to eat them. Nobody is. I mean, there, there's even controversy around sport hunting of grizzly bears mm. and and baiting black bears uh, and, 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 and that whole thing. And, and someone will say, oh, I know guys that eat bear. Hey, heck, I know guys that eat bear. I do. But people are not targeting grizzlies for their meat. It's just maybe you can find one person that might say, okay, well, then I, you know, that's not the norm. They want the rugs, right? They want the mounts. They want the tusks. They want the hides. And I just think to me, to steal a phrase, it's small dick energy. That's what it is. Why do you kill a giraffe? I don't know. I, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but I just can't wrap my, it, it really drives me crazy. I, yeah, I, <laughs> to me, I, I'm, I'm still hung up on the idea that, you know, they're different between cows and elephants. And, and I'm, I would have to agree with Heather on this one. So you're telling me it's the exact same thing to have a herd of dairy cows or to have a herd of elephants and you would view them the exact same way with regards to like considering animal agriculture industry and it's fine if you do i'm not i I mean the scale of of animal yeah agriculture that's and the impact that it has you know on water and air and all that jazz i don't like i think we could go all way off on this but to me, I feel like what your point was when you said, you know, elephants are herd animals, they're social, they have, you know, social hierarchies, cattle have that. And it's, I think it's, to me, it's more about like, what is my worldview? What am I accustomed to? And, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm from Alberta. So of course cattle is like, that's what, that's what we, we breed and we eat. And, um, elephants are a little more, well, exotic well and 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 so wally and and let's be honest we can all be guilty of this too because if you said to me like why do i go i mean i love fishing i love fishing and people say like why would you not think twice and it's true to pull in a big yellowfin tuna and club it over the head and make you know sashimi right on the boat uh which is like one of the most wonderful experiences of all time um but at the same time if someone pulled in a bottlenose dolphin and clubbed it over the head i would pick a fist fight with i would i would try to throw them off the boat yeah and someone will say to me i guarantee someone would say that's an a complete double standard and part of me would have to say you're right except for that i guess and i mean i do say this and i know hunters like i i have a world of respect for hunters this is not like someone right now is saying well why do we kill elk why do we kill anything and i think that there's nuanced differences you know someone say why why do we kill elk if there's an abundant supply of meat well that's not really a good argument as a matter of fact i think somebody that goes out and harvests an elk or a deer or a moose and feeds their family and uses the entire animal i mean farmers will uh, uh, rather hunters will have like spiritual experiences at at the whatever you'd call it the kill site or whatever wherever you bag your your animal they'll have a moment with that animal it's a it's a major they don't take it I mean, I'm talking the majority of hunters, at least the ones I've talked to, they don't take it lightly. They're very grateful. They work hard for it. They feed their family. It's the way that human beings have survived for millennia. Um, so to say, well, we have an abundance of meat, like you can just go to the grocery store. Why do you hunt elk? I don't, I don't see things. I don't. My perspective doesn't align there. But I, I do think that we can be guilty as humans of like we worry about the cute animals and the handsome animals and the beautiful, magnificent animals, the whales, the dolphins. We don't worry about a lot of the other animals uh, because they're they're ugly or unattractive. I think it's fascinating how people see a difference. And again, this is another massive can of worms between dogs and coyotes. Yep. Right. 
and, and, and a rancher. I mean, a rancher once I shared this on the show before had a very powerful. I mean, it was like a one sentence <laughs> email to me in my previous radio show that stuck with me. It will forever said everybody's got an opinion on coyotes said, but I've seen coyotes attacking calves in my cattle operation before the moms even fully birthed them. The coyotes are around mama while she is birthing a calf and the calf is, is the calf is being attacked by coyotes at the time brazenly. I mean, that's a different ball game, different perspective. But really, what's the difference between a border collie and a coyote with regards to look? Not a lot. Y- y- yes. I mean, I we need a whole show for this. <laughs> <laughs> there, I think we could probably do a couple, maybe a handful, maybe even a dozen. <laughs> Laurel says you should talk to a dude like Kevin Coswin about hunting. I love Kevin Coswin. Yeah, Good stuff. friend of mine. Um, and I would love to have Kevin on the show. As a matter of fact, Laurel, we will for sure. I guarantee it. Genevieve says as a person who just ate bear this week, I have to say we have a lot of education to do on eating bear in Alberta. Rose says killing an endangered species is just wrong. It's a sign of a weak person trying to dominate something. TC says, I'll advocate for the ugly animals. I love them. (laughs) Arnold Palmer says, carnivores are inefficient food sources. That's why we raise chickens and not dogs for eating. I mean, I think it's just, there's so many nuances within it because you can't just like have um, like clear straight lines on this. I mean, because also where we are and how we get our food now there's not a possibility to necessarily make really clean, clear choices. Mm. I mean, I, I don't get to pick necessarily um, where my milk comes from. Like, and I can, I can choose like some, 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 a variety of like small changes, but I'm part of a bigger system that I don't have control over. So does, does that make sense to you? I'm, I'm, I'm intently listening and I'm with you on your on your exploration of this thought. And, yeah. and I'm also daydreaming a little bit as you're talking, <laughs> because because the minute that you brought up milk, if you're going to read my mind a little bit like you just did, this is going to be really creepy. <laughs> I'm actually going to start, Sam, maybe we could like tint the plexiglass or something to create some sort of opaque, uh, reduce her ability to, to sense when my mind is starting to wander. Yeah. But you know what I was thinking? As soon as you brought up milk, I was like, we need to do a segment on almond milk, oat milk, cow's milk, goat milk. That sounds like that sounded like a Dr. Seuss thing. Uh, but but seriously, like, you know, people will talk about almond milk. Well, how much water is that using? Or I mean, yeah. let's OK, here's the deal, because real talkers are going nuts right now. We're actually picking up live audience uh, as we speak, which is an interesting <laughs> parameter. I wonder if people are texting saying they're talking about elephant hunting. Tune in. And uh why don't we do a whole show? We'll, we'll put some time into it. Real talkers will let you know well ahead of time when it's going to be. And let's talk about all this. But we're Love not it. just we're not just going to bring on a bunch of bleeding hearts. No, we're going to like we're, we'll bring on hunters and we'll bring on. Uh, a, well, like, Kevin is a great example. Kevin's like, a great example. Yeah. I, I'll reach out to my cousin who baits black bears and leads bear hunts, guides bear hunts. He'll come on. He'll talk. He doesn't, he doesn't mind the tough questions. Wow. I've interviewed him before. They put out candy and peanuts and M&Ms in big barrels, and black bears come up to the barrels, and pff, people blow them away. And, uh, and I'll get him on the show. I guarantee he'll talk about it. Wow. I want to get, like, let's talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can email us. Mm. Let us know what you would like this show to include. We'll get an animal rights lawyer. I'm excited about this. Because it's going to make all of us squirm. And I want people to ask me questions that make me uncomfortable. I mean, it's just interesting when you talk about the the almond milk. The I've been trying 
desperately to find a replacement for cream because I'm like, you know, I, I, I feel like what I buy is my vote. That's like what, like my vote every single day. What do I choose to buy? What do I choose to invest in my hard earned, like my money? what do I choose to invest that in? And so I've been looking at milk and like, well, do I agree with how milk is produced? Blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, okay, but I love the taste of cream. Like I love, like having a coffee. You should not deny yourself cream. So I've tried almond cream. I've tried soy. I've tried uh, oat and nothing. Like you have to get the, like, it's the, um, it's the, oh, it's just like the taste and the. The lactose perhaps. There's the lactose as well. Um, but just like the texture of it, like you can't. Oh, so you're, you know what you're going to do is you're going to get an Alberta milk sponsorship. <laughs> That's what you're going to get. My family's big in milk. You know, this is going to happen. You just Google. My family is big in milk. You Google. Je- no, it's like they're the biggest dairy it. farms in the province. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have I, I haven't checked my phone yet, but my cousins are probably texting me right now being like, you want to talk milk? We better have a seat at that table. <laughs> That's what they're going to be saying. And it's a perfect time to remind you that our friends at the Dairy Queens of uh, Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have both the delicious dairy and dairy-free dilly bars. The truth is this entire spontaneous chat was really just teeing up the Dairy Queen thing. We've been planning this all week. I'm also excited to let you know that Mark, Michael, and Michelle, your local owners of these six Dairy Queens, tomorrow... We'll be launching their very first promo here on Real Talk for Real Talkers. Real Talkers will pay less at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park than anybody else. All you have to do is cite the show. You have to say Jespo or Real Talk and ding, there's going to be a benefit for you. Now, every month it's going to be different. I can't tell you the details of this promo until tomorrow, but I can tell you it's going to have a little something to do with Mother's Day. Very cool. Mother's Day will be the theme of our first promo with our friends at Dairy Queen. That starts tomorrow. Also, at Friesen Brothers, you are going to find vegan, vegetarian, and meat-loving options in all of their 15-based Alberta stores. Tis the season to flex your license to grill. And whether that's zucchini or sourdough or Alberta ribeyes that you're throwing over those flickering flames, those charcoal briquettes, the beauty that is the outdoor spring and summer grill, you're going to find everything you need at Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years, proudly Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Well, our thanks to our next guest for, for hanging tight while we solve all of the ethical issues around hunting, Plant proteins, animal proteins, and dairy. He's not here to talk about that at all, however. He's here to talk about the superheated housing markets that we're seeing across Canada. Talk to anybody. They're going to tell you that inventory is a real issue. Thomas Davidoff is director of the Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate in the Souter School of Business at the University of British Columbia, making his Real Talk debut. Thanks for making time for us, and welcome to the show. Thank you. And I'm going to indulge myself. Don't whack out animals. Yeah. Is that is that a is that your thing? Have you have you had that position for a long time? Vegetarian or vegan? You know, pretty close. You know, I'll do dairy if somebody serves me dead, dead critter fish. Kind of OK. But, you know, fish, it's kind of tricky, right? It's like, oh, well, they're dumb. So it's OK to kill them and eat them. You know, that gets to be a pretty slippery slope. So, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you. And I agree with you. I love these conversations. I love that you're game to play ball in this for a second. You know, I was saying, you know, when, when I pull in a fish from an alpine lake, this beautiful three pound rainbow, it's it's magnificent. And if it's a keeper and if we're going to keep it and if we can, 
I'll always say thank you, fish. Like it's just it's just a little thing, but I say it and we don't waste it. And I actually feel like garbage in a catch and release situation where something goes sideways. Anglers know what I'm talking about. And the fish doesn't make it. And, and I feel yeah. lousy about it. And I don't mind those moments of discomfort. They're important. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, there's gradations, right? I mean, like factory farmed cog. I mean, I, you know, uh, we were talking about uh, cream. You know, it's delicious. I like it. I get that. And, you know, dairy, you know, it's a different situation. But, you know, oh, I really like the taste of bacon. So it's OK for somebody to, like, raise a smart animal like a pig in a factory situation where there's intelligent animals being abused and leading a horrible life. I mean, come on. I just, you know, you have pets. Nobody would do that to a cat or a dog. I just I I don't but because it's delicious you can't go without it crazy crazy to me totally crazy I've I've loved these conversations with with people uh, you know and, and asking like do you think a hundred years from now like when we can truly see attitudes changed on on things like cannabis use or gay marriage or or women voting or things like that where you go sometimes you have to say like over the course of a hundred years how will things like sexism misogyny racism potentially hopefully change um and i wonder if if in a hundred years with advancements we're seeing in plant proteins and meat substitutes and all that kind of a thing um and people calling for more efficient practices more sustainable practices um i'll be curious to see if humans are still eating meat in a hundred years from now what do you think yeah, no, I, I think attitudes change, you know, just as a bit of a segue, maybe something I think about is old age homes. I remember visiting my uh, great grandmother and just being disgusted and it was gross and, you know, aging scary to a five year old kid. But like it stank in there. You know, imagine warehousing people, you know, we're all going to turn 90 and, uh, you know, like living in a lousy nursing home just because you're infirm, you know, doesn't make it more tolerable. So, you know, and, and we've gotten rid of insane asylums, which is what we did with people with mental illness, you know, we're. We're getting better with aging, you know, with coronavirus, we saw it's not so great. So, you know, a lot of things we do in our everyday lives, oh, it's okay. And, you know, it's not okay. And of course, things that have seemed okay historically, we we, we think are horrifying today. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm thinking of parents like smoking with the windows rolled up in their cars with the kids in the back okay, or, right? or, or even like, oh, I'm opening up another can here. What I'm going to do is I mention it and then I'm going to quickly move on. But like spanking, right? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. I've got a I've got a buddy that like spanking proudly i want to say he's proudly spanks his kids he's a wonderful guy he's a loving father he's going to know exactly who i'm talking about because he's the only guy we know that spanks his kids but he does not apologize for it one bit and uh and i'll be curious to know like how that goes that used to be that was like the norm i would say 20 years ago 30 years ago wasn't yeah. it well, I have I have a, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to get into nationality, but somebody from, you know, a different culture talking about growing up. Well, it's just typical. You know, my parents beat the crap out of me as a kid when I did stuff bad. And, uh, you know, interesting stuff. Jillian, by the way, on our live chat says, I'm sorry, did this guy just attack bacon out? She says, out. We better change the subject, Thomas. So so not everybody leaves. Watch you- Charlotte's Web. Tell her to watch Charlotte's <laughs> Web. <laughs> Why did you have to do that? Why did you have to do that? You just now you ruined bacon for me for the next six months. Uh, you know what we need is we need a We need a, a film that casts a pig as a villain. And then I can feel good about it again. Um, the Canadian real estate market is absolutely red hot right now. Last year, the federal agency, uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the CMHC, forecast housing prices would fall uh, by about 20 percent, 18 percent because of the pandemic. That has definitely not happened. Can you give us a perspective check? 
Yeah, you know, I thought, ooh, all assets, this is going to be a horror show. And that was in February when I was thinking maybe one or two month lockdown. If you told me the economy is really going to be slowed down, I'm going to be teaching by video uh, through April 2021, I would have said a year ago, okay, that's that's a horror show for housing prices. But, you know, I think that missed something. And, and there's two features of this uh, pandemic, three, I guess, that have really fed the housing uh, boom we're seeing. Uh, item one, this is an economic slowdown, which makes you want more space. If you haven't lost income, everybody knows, you know, tripping over each other in an apartment or a small home is a drag. So we all just want more space. And so if we have it, uh, if we have the resources, a lot of people are trading up. That's one. Two, super low interest rates to stimulate the economy. And uh, with incredibly low interest rates, lots of people can qualify for mortgage loans they wouldn't be able to otherwise. And there are many, many buyers whose strategy in terms of how much house to buy is buy as much as the bank will let you. The bank, you know, uh, up to stress test stuff will let you buy a lot more when interest rates fall. So that's two. And then the third issue is who's lost income. Unfortunately, one feature of the pandemic is it's been relatively low income service oriented jobs uh, where the incomes have been lost. Uh, higher compensated people have not had as much of a loss of income. And that's typically who's able to buy a home, right? This year, it's not like 50% of Canadians are buying homes. It's just whatever, 5, 10% ish. So uh, there's certainly five or 10% of the population uh, that's doing just fine uh, through the pandemic economically. That's such a great point about about who's experienced more financial instability. And, and then you see that implication. I mean, the housing market, um, as if I'm telling you this, I'm more forming, putting a statement in the form of a question, but it's fascinating how a national housing market is sort of a not just forecast, but the reality is such an interesting barometer of how the economy goes. Right. And not just on things like sales or, or list prices, but also how we see, you know, uh, condos and houses and recreational properties and in which order they start to move. It's, it's really fascinating, isn't it, on, on what you can extrapolate from that and where the economy's at and where people's confidence is at. Well, absolutely. And of course, you know, rental apartment rents aren't particularly uh, up. Uh, detached houses in remote areas are up the most, as you mentioned, recreational stuff, because, you know, we don't know what's going on with work from home. You know, if this was just a temporary thing where you're on Zoom and then it's back to the office, it would be crazy to see suburban prices outpacing urban prices the way they are. But, you know, I talk to my undergrads who I figure are a pretty good barometer. They want to work from home three days a week. They want to have an office, but they're not expecting being in the office five days a week. Maybe maybe we'll revert to that. But, you know, if you're commuting 50 percent less, uh, an extra 30 minute commute is not as big of a deal. And so whereas cities had been where it's at because of the uh, demographic structure of where, where people are in the life cycle who are buying homes, downtowns have been doing very well, suburbs have been weak, and then coronavirus comes along uh, and it's really flipped that. So it's gonna be super interesting to see whether the downtowns come back, which I expect they will, but you know, it's not a home run. Yeah, well, well, I mean, bounce back, sure. But like you said, there's gonna be such a huge shift in what people are looking for and, and how people work. Um, are you concerned? I mean, downtown Calgary is one I think that's a national example because it's got that kind of double whammy of the pandemic yeah. plus the oil and gas downturn. Um, sure. And it makes me sick, quite frankly, because it affects a lot of people that I know and love. Uh, a 30% vacancy in downtown Calgary. You see it if you're coming into the city at night and the skyline and the, just even the lights off. It, it just is a huge difference. Do yeah. you see Calgary getting back to where it was or, or do you think that might be a new reality in a city like that? 
Well, forecasting is tough. You yeah. know, we talk about things where we'll wonder in 100 years and, you know, fossil fuel could be one of them. Uh, but, I, you know, you might tell from my accent, this is not a Kitsilano accent. This is a Brooklyn accent. And uh, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, people didn't want to be downtown uh, or in the city at all of New York. They wanted to be out in the suburbs where there was less crime and homelessness and general disamenity. So, you know, we lived in not too too distant memory through a period where people thought the downtowns were going to die. That wasn't. And, and then the Internet could have killed them, too. Right. I mean, you know, you, once the fax was invented, the need for in-person was really reduced. But in fact, more service-oriented businesses have taken advantage of the internet and person-to-person contact has gotten more valuable, not less valuable. So it's a coin toss. I don't know, you know, Alberta's energy sector dependence is a real concern. It could go back really strong or it could be a disaster. Uh, But downtowns generally, yeah, you know, definitely can get overbuilt and uh, emptied out. I can't wrap my mind around. Maybe you can shed some light on this. Um, and, and and again, the reason we're so grateful you're joining us out of BC is is we, we want to have a, a more clear understanding of, of what's happening across the country. Um, what I see in front of me in some cities is talk about, uh, you know, a languishing or struggling or stagnant economy. We see vacancies downtown. We see that, you know, there's evidence somewhere of, of internationals, you know, writing down assets in, 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 you know, traditionally strong fields, you know, the oil sands or anything else. And yet at the same time, these suburbs are being built out and these developments are happening. And, and I'm sitting, I'm looking at list prices and even single family detached. Again, this will show my regional awareness here for, for people, I mean, in, in Vancouver, if you could get a single family detached for three seventy nine, people would do anything. I mean, it'd be unbelievable. You'd, you'd wonder what's wrong with it. Um, but here still, I mean, like who's buying all these houses? Who's, who's building these six hundred thousand dollar, these million dollar houses? If the economy's struggling, what the hell's going on? I mean, what am I missing here? Well, you know, again, the, the need for space, low interest rates. So a $600,000 house, what are your payments on that? You know, uh, maybe 5%, even if you were fully leveraged. You know, so you're less than, you know, three grand a month, uh, you know, before your expenses. So, you know, uh, the, the low rates are a big deal. Do you see with regards to the the stress test that you touched on, a lot of people were calling for it uh, in different jurisdictions where they thought that it yeah. might work to, to kind of slow down or, or infuse some realism in the housing markets. But if you talk to real estate agents or boards, um, in, in some other like the Maritimes or in the prairies, they were furious about it, yeah. right? Because they were saying it doesn't fit us. Like you can't take a cookie cutter solution and impose it on the whole country and try to slow down Vancouver's superheated market or Toronto's and at the same time have it work for Winnipeg. Uh, do you agree with that? Has, how, how would you see that playing out? Well, it's like interest rates generally, right? I mean, anytime you have a national policy, like, you know, the uh, Bank of Canada wants interest rates to be low, which is totally appropriate because we've got a struggling economy and they want a message to people. They're going to try and keep rates low for a long time, uh, you know, to make sure people uh, get out and spend today. But then that affects the housing market. And you mentioned the stress test and, and that gets split. There's insured mortgages, which are only going to be on properties under a million, which isn't certainly all of greater Vancouver, but just about everything in, uh, you know, Alberta. You know, you're going to be able to get an insured mortgage without this new tighter stress test. And taking a step back for listeners, the stress test is the is the rule where uh, you, you qualify for a mortgage not at today's rate, but it is a higher rate. And as a prudential move for larger loans and loans uh, generally without insurance, 
the, the government's requiring you to qualify at five and a quarter percent, even though today's uh, interest rates may be two percent or even a little lower. Where do you see this all going? Like we, we talked to Sapria Dovetti, who's uh, a political pundit out of Toronto, and, and I, I told her I was going to be talking to you. I said, we've got Dr. Davidoff coming up. And I said, so, so she just sold her home in Toronto um, within the last couple of weeks. Yeah. She says it was on the market for seven days, multiple offers, sold way over list. And then she said, but we also just paid way over list, obviously, for the house that they're moving into. So, you know, I don't know if that's a win or not. Um, I said, what's one question that you would ask Thomas? And she said, what's the tipping point? Well, you know, I, I really hate to do this, but uh, a lot of people are calling bubble. And I think we ought to be very careful about that. You know, people were calling a bubble in the San Francisco Bay Area in 2005. And I just uh, plotted this out. I put it on Twitter. You know, home prices in the key urban areas around America are higher, even inflation adjusted than they were at the peak in 2005 before the subprime bust uh, brought things down. So uh, the thing is today, if, if you think about the value of an asset, and this gets a little mathematical, so bear with me, you know, a fair rate of return, how much should the rent be as a fraction of value? Well, you need a fair rate of return. So think about some asset that's just as risky as a house, not a treasury at 2%, maybe a bit more. So you need that, but you take off of that, how much do you think rents and prices are gonna grow per year? So suppose that CPI of 2% in the long run. So the annual rate of return, the rent you're not you're saving by being an owner should maybe be arguably one or 2% of property value. That's an incredibly small fraction. So if you think about the value, you take the rent and you divide it by this number that's maybe 2%. But wait a second, it's not really 2%. Maybe you should think about more risk. So it should be two and a half percent. Maybe you think rents are gonna grow faster than inflation. So it should only be one and a half percent. But think about a number where you change the denominator from two and a half to one and a half. That's something like you know thirty to fifty percent change in value, uh, or you know uh, you know almost a doubling of value, with small changes in your assumptions about value, right? If you're just off a little bit in how fast you think rents are going to grow, or when interest rates are going to revert to more historically high rates, okay? If you're off on those assumptions you're off on the fundamental value of the house by 50%. So anybody who says, well, home prices have deviated just so, so far from fundamentals, you know, you don't know. You know, we, we just don't know. So is there a world in which, you know, maybe international capital, maybe hedge funds start buying more of what are now owner-occupied homes and renting them out to people? So, because they're, they're able to pay it. The problem is people's lifetime incomes can't support a fundamental value when you're discounting it, when you've got that denominator, riskless rate minus growth, you know, 1% or something. Ordinary people can't earn enough money to put down a down payment or make payments to pay off the principal. So, you know, maybe it'll be institutions owning homes. That said, of course, we've seen way, way lower valuations at very similar rents. And could prices fall 50% if rates jump up or there's some kind of stagnation in the economy? Of course they could, but I don't see a particular number uh, which where I can say, oh, yeah, no, I know. I know that's not the fundamental value. If I think about a condo in Vancouver, it could be worth on a fundamental basis. You could tell me a million and a half and I wouldn't be shocked. You could tell me 500,000 and I wouldn't be shocked. So I think picking a number past which I rule things out. One exception. And sorry to go on and on. No, one go exception. on and on. This is fascinating. 
One exception is elastically supplied so-called drive to qualify suburbs. So if you look at the boom bust cycle in the US, which, you know, sorry to fight that battle, but that's the sort of the big, big event in, in my adult life in terms of home prices. Uh, the places that boomed the most were not San Francisco, Boston, New York. They were these outlying suburbs and, uh, you know, sort of what they call drive to qualify places where the subprime lending was really active in Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and not the Central Valley, the but not, not, not the coast of California, but the Central Valley where it's easy to build. So they got way overbuilt. And, you know, nobody wants to live near downtown Bakersfield or Fresno. It's not like, you know, there's some premium to being downtown. So you can keep building the same cookie cutter subdivisions. The houses are just as good. And they, they in the U.S., they cost something like 200K to build. And the houses were selling for 600K. And that and, and ha that can't be sustained. If you're if you see prices exploding in an area where there's no premium to being in a particular location and you can build as many cooker, cookie cutter houses as you want, then prices just really fundamentally should not be much more than construction costs. And if they are, you worry. But that's not a lot of Canada. We're very heavily regulated. Construction's a big pain in the neck. And in a lot of the metro areas, you do care about location. But when I talk about coronavirus and is downtown going to survive, once you get rid of a commuting premium to downtown Toronto, I think it gets pretty easy to add supply. Uh, and then you really do worry about the sustainability of price growth. Hmm. I've got a great uh, comment here from Chad. I mean, it's, it's just where he's at, right? He says we're getting ready to buy our first house. As a matter of fact, he says we are ready to buy our first house, but the market's gone so wild that properties are going in days of being listed and, and we're stuck now having to wait. It, it kind of reminds me. I mean, it's probably a poor comparison. And I'm going to put this in front of a guy with degrees from Harvard and Princeton and MIT. So I'm a little intimidated to throw out the comparison. But but it, it's it reminds me of a conversation I had just a couple of days ago with a buddy who's trying to decide whether or not he's going to get in on crypto. Right. And he's paying attention to Bitcoin. And he's paying attention to Ethereum and he's trying to read everything he can. And he realizes that there are these massive swings and he's trying to reconcile right now. If Bitcoin keeps going up, the sooner you get in, the better. But what happens if it plummets and what happens if he bought in high? And that's the whole, that's the exact same thing with real estate. I mean, my wife and I personally were stuck with a condo right now. We couldn't sell it right now for half of what we paid for it. So we're just renting it out until it yeah. recovers. I mean, it's a tough game to try to play, especially if you're like Chad, who's trying to get in for the first time. Yeah, timing the market's a fool's errand. You know, I mean, right, housing prices are formed by the wisdom of everybody. You know, I remember my old uh, PhD advisor was on a, doing a radio interview one time and somebody asked him or, or called in and said, look, I think with a little bit of attention, the average investor can beat the market. It's like, wait a second, the market is the average investor. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, at, at in the stock market, you're up against, you know, former uh, physicists, you know, uh, PhD economists, whatever at Goldman Sachs, who, who just have infinite resources and, and, and ability to time to time the market better than you do. So forget about it. Uh, you know, crypto, same deal. I don't see how an ordinary person can think they're smarter than everybody else uh, and expect to make money because of their just special intuition. Uh, you know, housing is cyclical. You know, this does seem like a pretty frothy time. I think generally the rule is if you see a place and you're thinking of living it, you know, make sure it's a place you want to live and you can really afford the payments if things go south a little bit. And, you know, if, if you're if you're committed, you, know, you probably can't beat the market in terms of timing. I, I'm reluctant to call bubble at any point. Appreciate the insight. It's exactly what we were looking for. Dr. Thomas Davidoff, uh, director of the Center for Urban Economics, Real Estate at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for this. Hey, thank you. Great show. This is fun. Thank you. We'll do it again. Uh, yeah, I love that from Dr. Davidoff. Um, 
I, I think also probably you know you know he sort he sort of like brushed it aside when I made the the comment, which I try to pick up on like whether or not that makes somebody uncomfortable or not. So what we do is that we talk about them when they're gone. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's the first, uh, and I'm saying this facetiously, he's guaranteed the first guest on Real Talk that has a an undergrad from Harvard, a grad degree from Princeton, and a PhD from, from MIT. I'm pretty sure. That's like the Clara Hughes conversation we were having earlier. He's pretty legit. When you're, t- again, at the cocktail party, the swanky fancy cocktail parties, when, when we've all been jabbed and we can all gather again. You're with Dr. David often there'll be someone in the room that's like, I went to Harvard and he'll be like, oh, really? For, for your undergrad, your grad degree or your uh, doctorate? <laughs> I chose Harvard for my undergrad because I really wanted to go to Princeton for my grad degree. And then I thought MIT would made more sense. For the, oh, yeah, for the absolutely. So, if you're going to. That was like me. There's just nothing more exhausting than having to pick which <laughs> Ivy League school you're going to go to. You know what I mean? Some great comments. on, and, and this is amazing. I mean, like, you know, obviously we have people that that uh, and, and we know that these interviews will be heard um, by the majority of our audience members outside of our live window. So I encourage I'd love to hear from those of you that are hearing this later this afternoon into the evening. Maybe you're hearing it a week from now. The hashtag Real Talk RJ is where you can let us know what you think. Or, of course, you can send us an email anytime to talk at Ryan But people in different situations. You know, writing in something like he just kind of like brushed off three thousand dollars a month mortgage payment like that's no big thing. I mean, for some people, that's not that big of a deal for some people in some parts of the country. They're paying three thousand bucks a month to rent. Mm. And quite frankly, the place probably isn't that great. Like, it's probably pretty nice. But twenty five hundred bucks rent in downtown Vancouver is not you're not in a palace. You know, you're not you're not living next to all the Vancouver Canucks. Right, I mean, it's wild. Whereas three thousand bucks a month in rent in other parts, you know, in in I don't know why I'm going to pick a city. No matter which city I pick, they're going to be pissed off about it. You know, Saskatoon, beautiful city, great city, but three thousand bucks a month probably goes a pretty long way there, right? So, you know, Miranda's writing in. She says, "I'm looking to buy, and it'll be cheaper than the thirteen seventy five a month rent I'm paying." You know, she says, and that's keep. You know, says my rent went up six months ago, right? And what's going to stop it from going up again? Meantime, Hope writes in and Hope's got the question that I, I guess I was kind of asking, too, where you, you take a look at these suburbs under construction and, and the housing inventory and the condo inventory that, that keeps seeing addition. And you wonder, I thought the economy was dead in the water. Mm. Who's buying all these houses? Right. And Hope says RV sales, automotive sales, sleds, motorcycles. They've all had banner years. What the hell is going on? She says, aren't people $200 away from insolvency? Like it makes zero sense to me, says Hope. That makes perfect sense to me. How come? Well, as Dr. Davidoff pointed out, like the, the pandemic was, you know, we talk about the K-shaped recovery, right? And and the whole idea that like not everybody was was hit equally. Um, we, we have two populations coming out of this pandemic. We have the people that were Serb paycheck to paycheck, didn't have a steady job, struggling to get by this year has been hellish for them. And then we have the other people that had, you know, white collar downtown jobs where they got to work from home and suddenly realized that they want a bigger suburban house and they've had the same income that they've had the entire time before that without, you know, the the sudden lack of income or the sudden expenses that come on from the pandemic. There's a huge, huge, very privileged pop- part of the population that were able to just hunker down and save money. So I think we're about to see this mat. Like if we thought there was a have and have not divide before, it's going to get worse. It's going to get way worse before it gets better. 
But it's also woken people up to things like social programs like the CERB. It's got more Canadians talking about things like universal basic income. I, I would imagine yeah. that attitudes have probably been influenced by what people have seen through the CERB. And it's not just white collar downtown types that have been insulated from the effects of the pandemic. Public servants have been insulated from the effects of the pandemic. It's not a swipe at public servants. That's just a fact. You know, public so, service is a great job. It's a great you job. You have a lot of job security if you're a public servant. 100%. Uh, Jillian follows up, says folks who didn't lose their jobs in the pandemic are doing very well. Uh, and I'm thrilled to see that Jillian did not leave uh, after the good doctor cracked on bacon. Jillian had threatened to leave. <laughs> well, I think she was more asking me to, to show him the door. Yeah. But I'm really glad that she stuck around. I had a chance to get outside and play golf yesterday with uh, Scott Held uh, from Held Automotive Group, St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. And with his permission, I asked him, it ties in directly to what we're talking about here. I said, hey, in, in my mention, would you be OK with me? I, I mean, I think it, people would be interested to know, yeah, that that like inventory on trucks right now is a real problem. That's just a fact. So when, when we come out and we say St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge has Alberta's best selection of Ram trucks, they don't have as many Ram trucks as you are expecting them to have, but they have more than everybody else. He told me that they're able to carry about a week's worth of inventory. I said, what would you normally have? He said, oh, easily over a month's worth. Why? Manufacturing. Microchips. The Texas storm. This all traces back. I mean, more people buying computers through the pandemic. More people building home offices. It's amazing the effect that it has on industry. And I said to him, I go, but trailer sales are like out of control. And he goes, we cannot stock trucks like fast enough. Trucks are going. He goes, absolutely tell Real Talk. He goes, he said to me, isn't your show called Real Talk? I was like, now that's the kind of partner I want, my man. He said, you can tell people we don't have as much trucks as we usually do, but we still have more than everybody else. I said, well, then that's a pretty good reason to go see them at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also, big shout out. We've been checking our hashtag today as we do Real Talk RJ. It's powered every single show by the team at Park Power. They're in the electricity, natural gas and Internet game have been for coming up on 10 years now an amazing locally owned power provider that gives back 10 percent of its profits they keep them in the community they support nonprofits. you can learn more about that by checking out their social media platforms they do a great job on instagram i love their instagram if you use the promo code 2021-realtalk at parkpower.ca you'll save 70 bucks off your first bill no questions asked I'm really excited for this. Are we ready to rock and roll with our next Canadian icon? Okay, well, give me a heads up when he signs in. Uh, Ed the Sock is joining us today. I should have asked Dr. Davidoff. We should have had that common thread, the theme. I asked Supriya what we should ask Thomas. I should have asked Thomas what we should ask Ed the Sock. We could have had that going. Um, so looking forward to that conversation. This is it's called New Music Nation, and they've they've they they're taking they're tapping into the amazing history of much music and those platforms, and then they're building something new, crowdfunded. And last night, on the eve of his debut on Real Talk, they reached one hundred percent funding for New Music Nation. So we're very much looking forward to that. It gives me an opportunity to get into our email inbox, and, and we wanted to leave some time today to read some of these messages that you've been passing along to us. It doesn't make any sense for us to ask you to be in touch if we don't leave time on the show to read what you're sending us. We loved this from Noemi. 
who says uh, to Ryan and Sam and welcome to Sarah, uh, says I'm writing for two reasons. Oh, get ready for the shouts out because they are coming. Uh, Sarah, people are, are starting to, to, to connect with you in a way that uh, there's, it's hard to describe this real talk audience. I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like it. Absolutely wonderful. Your uh, ego is going to grow a lot, Sarah. Like yeah, a he, lot. He speaks oh, from boy. experience. Yeah. We had to raise the door jam so Sam could get in in the mornings. <laughs> he had to buy a new bike helmet. Um, but I was able to tell you where to buy him. So that that's that's also telling. <laughs> no, he says, I know it's. You know, there you go. Self-deprecation. You got to have that at the toolbox. Noemi says, I'm writing for two reasons. Number one is to thank you. She says to the show, the, the year's been hard, like really hard. And not just because of COVID, but because of all the crap going on in the world. It's made worse, it seems, by current government. Seems hell-bent on ruining the province I love. I've always been an engaged citizen, but honestly, I'm running out of steam. I, it just felt like everywhere I turned was another crisis and more negativity. It says, I've been an avid fan of the young Turks for a few years and I kept wishing that there was an independent media source with stories closer to home that I could listen to and engage with and I found real talk just a few weeks ago and it was a hallelujah moment like-minded people facts different perspectives but credible sources says they don't always agree with you Ryan or your guests but I always learn something new the show makes me think and it gives me ammunition to back up my arguments in real life conversations sometimes we touch on topics I didn't even know I needed to know about like Bitcoin your show makes me laugh it makes me cry but most importantly it gives hope and the reassurance that I'm not fighting the fight for a better Alberta all on my own on to my second point where is the real talk swag I became a patreon subscriber a few days ago thank you and I want to help get more visibility for your show. Now that you have extra help with Sarah, can we please get some mugs, shirts, and hats to purchase? Thank you for clearing the way for great conversations in the chaos and for building this amazing community. That from Noemi, which is pretty unbelievable. Um, I'm thrilled to let you know that the three items that you have requested, mugs, shirts, and hats, are all in-house. Our e-commerce site is in the final stages, and we will be rolling out Real Talk swag in very short order. Um, we've done a preliminary run. We're really excited about the designs and the first right to purchase. The first crack at it will be given exclusively to our Patreon subscribers. You can join us in supporting the show on a monthly basis. Uh, we don't talk about it a lot. We should probably talk about it more. So say the, those on, in charge of the business sides of this operation. Um, but we have uh, a lot of things coming down the pike, some really cool stuff for our Patreon supporters. And you can learn more about that uh, at the top bar of our website at ryanjesperson.com. Powerful conversation yesterday with Jeremy Allen, the grief educator. Uh, we I, I've picked a few emails of, of the dozens that we received the messages on social media. That was one of the most wonderful conversations I think we've had on this show to date talking about grief, just straight up, plain, real talk about grief. Miranda wrote in to say, thank you so much for Wednesday's show. It was one that may have opened my heart again. The last 20 years feels like nothing but loss and pain from losing a, a few friends, my grandfather in high school, my grandmother in my 20s. I miss her every day. My closest cousin four years ago, we were the same age. He died at, four, at 37, sick for years with a rare disease. My heart may be opened again after yesterday's show, says Miranda. Unbelievable stuff. Timothy wrote in to say thank you for Wednesday's episode. I'm glad 
that I'm the only one in the office today. I needed a good cry. My mother died a few years ago due to dementia. I grieved the day she no longer recognized me. I felt then she had died. A few years later, uh, when, when, when her body died, says Timothy, what a, that's that itself a profound statement. You talk to people that have lost loved ones to ALS, dementia, in some cases, Parkinson's, other diseases. They say, we lost you know, Alzheimer's. We, we lost grandma years ago, right? Timothy says, when her body died, I sat at her bedside through the night holding her hand until one of my brothers came home to be with her. And when she physically died, I did not cry for her dying. But I raised a glass with my family, a glass of vodka, says Timothy, to celebrate a life well lived. My father died a year ago, and we've not had the opportunity to gather as a family and say goodbye. His ashes are still on my sister's shelf, just waiting. I did not cry. I did not grieve his passing. I felt more relief that he was no longer lonely or in pain since mom left. Do I need to grieve? Asked Timothy. Hell yeah, but I can't. I don't know how powerful conversation and resonated obviously with timothy i'm just so it's never lost on me what it means to have people sitting down and and, i mean this is like this is like as personal as it gets talking about losing your parents talking about the pain of, of of losing someone to alzheimer's mary louise wrote in Signs off as a Patreon supporter. Mary Louise, thank you for that. She says, in the space of two years, I lost my three brothers, my sister-in-law, my mom, my dog, and my husband had emergency open heart surgery and, and barely survived. I truly don't. Uh, she's, Mary Louise says, I don't know how I survived all these deaths, but I did. My family lived in Ontario, so I, I didn't see them on a daily basis. So while I grieved them, it was different. You know, when we had to put our dog down three weeks after my mom died of cancer and I fell apart. Says, I think I, I think that when my dog died. The impact that had on me, she says, I guess I was kind of grieving my family through my dog. I had to take time off work as I couldn't cope. And it's been five years now, but some days I just fall apart. She says, I'm so grateful. My hubby totally recovered that from mary louise that was one that kind of jumped uh, out at me sarah when you when, when she says you know i don't when the dog died three weeks after her mom died she says she fell apart i was grieving my family through my dog and you know that like anyone familiar with grief will recognize how it can it can be something that that in the moment isn't or doesn't seem like the biggest deal i'm not saying someone's dog dying is not a big deal i am going to be demolished uh i don't want to talk about it um but the point is, you might say like someone maybe loses their keys or their phone falls in the toilet or, or, or like something or their, their favorite hockey team loses a playoff series and they are wrecked. And it's because there's so much other stuff. Right. And I thought that that conversation yesterday about the outlet and grieving and, and how Jeremy was talking about how he loves grief. Wasn't that interesting? I mean, I found it to be. I appreciated his frankness, like how he was saying, like, yeah, I, I love grief. And I'm like, who says that? <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like that's um, I'm a big th- I promise this connects. So I'm a huge fan of RuPaul, huge fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. And he always says that um, the way that people connect is when the the drag queens are 
vulnerable. And so to me, I, I appreciated that piece around, you know, I love grief and I feel like grief allows people to, it really shows people's vulnerability. It breaks down walls. Um, I don't wish it on anyone. I don't want someone to, to have to be grieving and in grief. But, um, and I also just, I loved the piece about saying the name, like just say the name, saying the name of the loved one that's passed and acknowledge it because it's not that I would be bringing it up to somebody and like whacking them upside the head with it and reminding them, no, 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 they are carrying that. That's being carried by them. So to me, I, yeah, I just, I, I so appreciated that conversation. I also really appreciated that it was a dude that was talking. I really appreciated that. What do you mean? Well, just, I mean, in previous shows, you've spoken about, you know, you're not afraid to say, I love you, man. And mm, um, yeah. I just really appreciated that there was th- this ability to to speak openly about, um, yeah, where they're at, what they're feeling, how grief can take somebody down, regardless of, you know, if if they identify as a woman or identify as a man. That's a great point. We got an email um after we talked to Maria Delu on the show about her GSA volunteer experience, that was a powerful conversation. I feel like that that interview kind of hit in waves. And the more that people that's that's one of our interviews. That's one of um, Sam's nodding. Do you feel the same way? I feel like I think we have a few conversations on the show and you've brought this up before where you get something more out of it if you listen to it again. And yeah. that's, that's absolutely one of them. I yeah. agree with you. And and Maria Deleuze, I think, is going to be one that it's now in our YouTube archive. And I think as more people hear about it, that 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 show is going to start making the rounds. It's the same with Chief Alan Adam yesterday. Powerful interview. I, I implore people interview. I implore people to check out out our previous interview with chief Alan Adam when he was on the show talking about cancer rates in Fort chip and the fact that he, he, he puts blame squarely. I mean, if you think this is a partisan thing for him, if you think he's just, just not a fan of Jason Kenney's leadership, I mean, he had strong words for the federal government too, with regards to, to data that exists. I mean, medical professionals that have been sounding the alarm about uh, disproportionate rates of rare cancers in the communities around Fort Chippewan um, due to pollution, industry related pollution in the water. And it was that's an interview where I think um, I'm going to be honest and just say it. I was after that interview, I was like, this this thing needs to have 500,000 views. I mean, like Canadians need to watch this interview. This is unbelievable. And I feel like there are some of those gems in our archives um, where those shows will catch on when more and more people hear about them. You know how that happens. Real talkers is you share them. You let them know it's there. Yvonne was listening to our conversation with Maria Delu. Quick primer. If you, if you missed it, you may remember Alberta's premier and others over the past number of years talking about gay straight alliances and, and, and parents rights to understand everything and hear about everything. And we can get into this someday, too, because I think it's a big gray area. There are some black and whites with regards to my personal perspective on GSAs and supporting LGBTQ plus kids. But when it comes to parents' right to know and what parents should be entitled to knowing and circumstances around parents being informed, I think that we can have these healthy conversations. Maria's case was, she says, uh, misportrayed, hijacked, weaponized is the word that she used. She said it was frankly not true when the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, uh, you know, invoked her in an affidavit talking about how she had taken kids from a GSA without parental permission off school property to her home. And she's finally able to go on the record now years removed. She says she didn't want any of the kids being identified. She wanted to protect the identity of those kids. We didn't name the school that she was volunteering at. She cares about these kids. 
But she told the tr- she said, here's the true story of what happened. I thought it was an p- amazing conversation. Yvonne wrote in shortly after and, and said, you know, I think one of the proudest moments I've ever had as a parent was a conversation with my daughter when she was in junior high school. Uh, and she says, you know, I picked her up from school and, and she told me that she had joined the GSA club. And, and I thought, OK, here we go. Um, says I, I've, I, I've rehearsed in my heart and my head for this moment, all of my parenting life, said Yvonne. So I said, sweetheart, love is love. And I'm always your mom. And I support you with whatever thoughtful decisions you make in your life. And her daughter said, Ma, I'm not gay, but those kids just really have a hard time. So I'm just there to show my support. How great is that? Isn't, isn't that the, the straight alliance part of the, the gay straight alliance? Gay straight exactly. alliances aren't yeah. great. Are, aren't, are, don't, they don't exactly live up to their mandate if there's no straight kids there. Yeah, I was going to say. It's like it's, it's just it's about showing support for, for other people around you. And so it's also fantastic. like not everybody walks in and declares their sexual orientation or their the, 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 I mean, the whole. Not everybody has a defined sexual orientation. Yeah, you know, exactly. This whole idea, the whole flu. I mean, that, that I think that Maria spelling out, I said, you know, and I asked her, I said, so what's the deal? But, you know. They, they're often described as sex clubs and she like had this audible response and you know she talked about how boring it was didn't she say that they were talking about like computer coding and dungeons and dragons or I, something i like almost that? used the clip of her saying uh most gsa meetings are actually really boring yeah <laughs> yeah because i mean that's what it is it's just it's 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 mostly just nerdy teenagers talking about nerdy teenager stuff because they're because they're portrayed and they are weaponized by politicians that want you to believe that you're otherwise perfect straight child that's not going to embarrass you at all or make your life uncomfortable in any way it's not going to have the other ladies in the coffee group or the other dads at wednesday night hockey uh, asking questions about your kid's sexual orientation or why your boy is wearing a pink shirt or why your girl is cutting her hair short nobody's going to ask these uncomfortable questions unless your child gets into a gsa and starts being subjected to the propaganda of converting them of teaching them to be gay, to make the choice of being gay, ba ba ba, right? And this is how it's born. And then people get whipped into a frenzy, and fear starts to take over because politicians are masters of that. That mm. lesbian activity we've all been lesbian about. Lesbian activity. Do we have the clip? Do you still Let have me it? Check. I, I like. asked you for it for a few days ago. We, we've sort of like left this one alone. Um, and, and uh, it's sort of funny as as I now, <laughs> I mean this these are this is the Streisand effect. Right. Is everybody familiar with this? The Streisand effect, the whole thing about like Barbara Streisand back in the day. I'm going to miss some of the details, but she made such a big deal over aerial photographers trying to snap photos of her estate. Um, that she, what was it? She like sent her lawyers after a bunch of people or something like that. And, and basically, what, have you heard this. about this? I don't. So Barbara Streisand. So and, and one of the unfortunate things, I mean, this is the Streisand effect in effect right now, live as we speak. Um, but she took steps to ensure that nobody could see her property. But all it did was make people more curious to see her property. And so ultimately what happened was that there was way more attention around Barbara Streisand's property than there ever would have been otherwise. Mm. And so people call it the Streisand effect. And here it is. When I Google lesbian activity, which you can imagine what the Google search may have turned up six (laughs) months ago. (laughs) We don't have firewalls here at Real Talk. So, you know, you get it all. Um, but right now, if you go lesbian activity, the the first stories that are going to come up is the member of parliament over out of Cloverdale, Langley City, Tamara Jansen, because of her comments. We have it. Are we ready to rock? Can we play? So this is this is this is a federally elected politician speaking on April 23rd. So it'll be a week ago tomorrow in the House of Commons uh, about conversion therapy. You're aware of conversion therapy. It, it 
quite frankly drives people to suicide is what it does. It's the idea that you can pray the gay away. And it's been widely condemned by anybody worth their salt in the psychological or psychiatrical psychiatry psychiatry. Do you see the psychiatry, the psychiatry community? The psychology, let me say psychologists mental and health? psychiatrists. There we go. The mental, <laughs> mental health, health professionals. There we go. We got it. Thanks, thanks for digging me out of that one, you guys. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, people involved in mental health across the board resoundingly condemn conversion therapy as having no scientific validity no it is not an evidence-based practice and this is one of those things as we've been talking on this show about trends and over the next hundred years or the next 20 years it's the type of thing that that you know cities have taken steps to ban it right individual cities in other words they'll deny business licenses to those practitioners of conversion therapy there's been pressure on provincial governments to take a stand and, and there's pressure for federal governments like the government of canada to legislate this type of thing so bill c6 is an act to amend the criminal code in the context of conversion therapy and here's what the elected member of parliament for Cloverdale Langley City, just east of Vancouver, Tamara Jansen had to say six days ago. Uh, the Honourable Mem- Member for Cloverdale Langley City. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad that the, uh, my colleague invoked the words of the prophet Micah. And so I'm going to invoke the words of the uh, Apostle Matthew. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. I have had so many people reach out to me in regards to this bill. And Charlotte, a young woman in Calgary um, who was involved in lesbian activity, struggled with self-worth and depression. She reached a point in her life when she did not want to continue with her lesbian activity and her parents supported her choice and helped her find a counselor who helped her process the feelings. She says, and I quote, because of the counseling, I had a deep sense of love and acceptance. It was not harmful, coercive or abusive in any way. If you enact the proposed bill, you're banning the exact support that I desperately needed at that time in my life. If this bill is to be truly inclusive, include people like me. So why will the government not respond? I have to. So there it is. And that's the clip that got people. uh, I was going to say that got people talking. (laughs) That is not an appropriate way to characterize the response to those comments. <laughs> it activated some folks. It activated a, a few people. It activated a few people. There's mugs available now that say lesbian activity. It's a hashtag. It's a, it's hashtag. a thing. We've had uh, some Janice prominent. Had the best I was going to say queer politicians yeah. like, like Janice Urban in the Alberta MLA uh, had a pretty funny video about it. But, but the thing is, and you can make light of it and, and you, can, you can take the phrase Right. And turned it into a positive like lesbian activity. Um, that to me would be a great name for a band, for example, yeah, uh, be a great name yeah. for a film. It would be a great name for, um, uh, quite frankly, a pond hockey tournament team. I can see a team called lesbian oh activity. Oh, my gosh. That a curling would be rink. so great. A curling rink. I would, I would set up a, a foursome of curling of lesbian activity. I think that would yeah. be great. Uh, but it but it really also like in all seriousness had, had people saying like first of all i'm not sure that the elected members of parliament should be quoting apostles and prophets and scripture uh in conversations around conversion therapy should be focusing more on science and evidence um other people would probably make the argument whether it's a popular one or not that 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 mp is probably representing the views of a lot of her constituents in in that very religious if you know the lower mainland 
And if you know Cloverdale and Langley and Aldergrove and Abbotsford and Chilliwack, you know that it's a Bible Belt in there. And she would probably, I would imagine, make the argument, because I've not seen a prominent retraction, um, that, sh- that she's reflecting the views of her constituents. Um, were you shocked when you heard it? Or how did you, how has that resonated with you? Well, I scoffed, I would say, probably was my initial reaction is scoffing, like, what are we calling it now? Um, and to me, I loved how it was harnessed. And it was basically saying, yeah. Look, I walk down the street. That is lesbian activity. Hey, look, I ride my bike or I go grocery shopping. I, to me, it really um, fit nicely into the conversation around the the GSA. Um, in that, you know, we're just we're just people, and um, we don't <laughs> what we who we are attracted to is really besides the point. We just want to be in community. We want to be. Um, yeah, we just want to be a part of. So, yeah. So, I, to me, I, I scoffed at it. I thought it was ridiculous. And uh, it, it just doesn't fit in my worldview. Hmm. Sam, how did it land with I, you? A couple things. One is I, I, I loved how Sarah just kind of talked about, yeah, walking down the street. Is that lesbian activity? And, and I'm reminded of, and, and I don't have the facts in front of me, but several elections ago, I think it was a provincial election, the just the phrase the gay agenda kept coming up and i remember um someone started a blog they called it the gay agenda and and she basically just wrote down what her and her wife does on a regular basis it was like (laughs) feed the cat go grocery shopping like that's the gay agenda you know what i mean it's just like it's so you know utterly backwards to think that they live this completely different life from us one of the things that really shocked me about that video um i don't know if this is shocking and i don't know if this is something that many people caught up on but does it seem like at the very end the speaker just cut her off? Like like enough of you now, okay? We're we're just going back to I this. wonder if she was up on her time limit. Mm. It could have been, yeah, very well could have been. Which is probably yeah. It. yeah, more than anything, but uh you can listen. I'm curious, see, I haven't dropped into the live chat cuz I just It just it yeah, like to say that in the House of Commons in 2021, like it, it just it baffles me yeah i mean jill Jill says you know the most offensive part for me is her quoting scripture i'm sorry that's not how you make decisions that are right and fair for everybody in 2021 um i have like my, my thing on this is you know you can have a like to me a religious politician is not a problem the problem is when the religion is influencing the political policy well, the, the point is, is that we are a secular society. So we there is a division between church and state. There has to be. And that's Absolutely. fine. Like, that's fine to me. If you are a devout Christian, if you are a devout Muslim, if you're a devout Hindu, if you're a devout, like whatever, it doesn't matter to me at all. We uh, yeah, need exactly. more people like that in politics. We need people. Uh, for, when, when we talk about diversity in politics, we have to mean what we say. We can't we can't say diversity based on our definition of diversity. What is our acceptable de- definition of diversity and who does it exclude? Interesting. But at the same time, what do we expect from our politicians? Right? What is their job? I'm happy to have a, a to employ a uh, a Christian plumber or a Muslim mechanic or a, an an agnostic lawn care professional. It doesn't matter to me. This is my wish list of things that I would rather pay people to do than do myself. That's that's what I just did there. I left out. I I, I could have said something like a, uh, you know, I could have thrown in like accounting and all the other things that I'm terrible at. But if they start 
going against best practice, accepted best practice, and start infusing their matters of faith as opposed to what is expected in that field, whether that's my tax returns or whatever. You know, you hire a lawn care guy and I say, well, what fertilizer did you use? And he said, as a matter of fact, I just said a prayer for your lawn. Well, you're fired, right? You're not doing your job. You're not doing your job. So, um, you know, the, the Lauren says the positive responses and humor supporting lesbian activity mm. is really revealing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you keep the comments coming here. Um, hate and whiskey, which is a great handle, says when your constituents views are hate speech and thus a crime, a politician is legally bound to not represent them. Uh, Kelly says that uh, she has friends in the constituency and there's a revolt against her now. Uh, Judy says the white Christian nationalist movement is strong in Canada to Kelly's comment. Like you can understand, too, um, when a politician speaks on behalf of. Like when they say the honorable member from Cloverdale Langley, if you live in Cloverdale Langley and your elected representative says that, you're like, what the hell? Like that's some unwanted attention right there. Mm -hmm. We see that from provincial premiers as well. Like how what about the 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 absolute overwhelming feedback we've had on child care from people that are saying I'm Albertan and my premier's response to the federal government on this is not my response on this. He doesn't speak for me. You know, people have been saying that time and time again. We also had a really powerful conversation on infertility and uh, what a roundtable that was. And it prompted Asia to reach out to us. Uh, she says, I sat in the sunshine with a cold beer yesterday and I listened to your infertility panel. And I want to thank the show for hosting such a moving, thoughtful, intelligent panel on such a sensitive topic. Asia says, I had a miscarriage the day after Christmas, and I've been trying to find ways to cope ever since. My partner is an RN at a Calgary hospital and has been dealing with both COVID and non-COVID patients alike since last March, sometimes at the same time, sometimes during the same shift. And discovering we were going to have a baby brought a little bit of light back into our lives. I, I think the hardest part of the miscarriage was knowing how happy my partner was about this future that we had dreamed up for ourselves in a mere four weeks after finding out I was pregnant and then having to see that light and joy taken away. He had to turn around on New Year's Day and return to the chaos and insanity of that hospital ward. Ryan's emotional connection to the panel made me think about all the partners who have to stand by helplessly while their partner goes through the physicality of a miscarriage or the loss of a child concerned for their partner expected to be supportive and say all the right things while experiencing just as much grief and trauma. You nailed it. She says, this was my first pregnancy and I have no idea if we're dealing with infertility or if we just happen to be one of the up to 25% of pregnancies that end in miscarriage, I would be celebrating the seven month milestone today. And I've been feeling generally glum all week. And your panel put things into perspective for me and reminded me how fortunate my partner and I are able are to be able to lean on each other. Thank you to Real Talk from Asia. Whew. Unbelievable. Well, it's real talk. I mean, you're doing exactly what you set out to do. Hey? It's doing what we said we would do. And we're going to keep it up. We have so many more emails here um, on child care and schools and vaccine access and tuition increases. We're going to do our best to stay on top of this. I hope you're up for the task, Hoyles, because now you're only ramping it up further. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And now we get to get started on the hunting round table and the dairy. It's, oh, boy. This is going to be unbelievable. 
this is going to be absolutely amazing. I just had a flashback to like high school when I was a jock and you're like, Hoyles. <laughs> did I, should I not say we have, cause this is the, this is the early learning of us all being together about like, you know, I, I actually took a, I, I should have asked, you don't just call someone a nickname. Although it is your last name. It is. It's not an insult. Is it not? A, it's not your last name, not an insult. Are you? Uh, do I think you, you can just call someone by their last name and it's not an insult. That is, is that true name. though? But it, but it sounds like it triggered a little something. Oh, I just, yeah, I just, you know. Just, what do your friends call you? Oh. Because um, once you put it out there, it's out there. It's the out way. there. I mean, I get, I think that you would appreciate that sometimes I get called the uh, Edmonton Hoilers. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's probably probably the top one, but Hoyles, Hoyler, Ahoy Hoy, um, those are kind of the the general the gist. Amazing. All right, here's the deal. Uh, we don't know what's going on with Ed the Sock. Uh, unfortunately, we had a date and he didn't show. Maybe he's just sort of reiterating that he's still the fucking boss. He's yeah, like, I'm Ed the Sock. I'm, you, a you know, I, I I'm a Canadian icon. I'm a Canadian icon. I'll show up when I'm good and ready. <laughs> What happened probably is I probably booked him for like the wrong time zone or something like that. But but we'll figure that out. We're going to get Ed the Sock on the show because now that we've now that I've wrapped my mind around interviewing Ed the Sock. We got to. We got like, to. We have to. Yeah. We have to. Um, tomorrow we have a great roundtable coming up. Uh, that roundtable round will include uh, Clara Hughes and Arlene Dickinson. We're so excited about that. And if I've seemed if I've seemed a little distracted is because i've just seen this cover for the very first time sam for the benefit of everybody checking it out on youtube look at this the may issue of edify magazine real talk is thrilled to have the cover the life of ryan fired from talk radio ryan jesperson now the prince of podcasting i only saw it three minutes ago i can't wait to dig in you can check it out at edifyedmonton.com friends have a wonderful thursday and we'll talk to you soon